Hello, folks, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so, so much for tuning in today. Um, yeah, as always, thank you guys for listening. It is because of you guys that we make these podcasts. Um, so please continue to listen. That's the best way you can support us. Also, please take just a couple minutes you know, it probably doesn't even take a couple of minutes. Maybe take 20 seconds out of your busy lives. I know you guys are really busy, but just please like and share uh, the podcast on, um, you know, if you found it on Facebook, please like and share that post that we put up. If you found it on YouTube, please like and share as well. Thumbs up. Um, and also spread it. Word of mouth, guys. That's the best way to uh turn people on to this conversation is to go out there into the real world and start talking to people about it and say, Hey, you know, there's a podcast that actually kind of touches on some of these issues and brings a little bit of clarity as much as I guess we can. Uh, we're trying, uh, but please continue to like and share. Thanks for listening. Also, you guys can donate to the podcast if you want. Uh, it's not necessary, but uh, the podcast is completely funded by donations uh, and, uh, you know, out of my own pocket. I don't take any profits from this podcast whatsoever. So you guys can rest assured that when you put your money towards this good cause, uh, which is, you know, making this database, this collection of consciousness experiences, um, that message goes out to many, many more people. And so your investment not only helps the podcast keep going, but also helps with things like bringing guests in from out of town, um, you know, paying their speaker fees, uh, getting better equipment, uh, better editing software, getting, uh, you know, sometimes I don't know what to do with editing or video. So sometimes I have to ask other people to help me out. And uh, sometimes that costs money. So Please, please consider donating. Uh, there should be a link at whatever at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening. Um, you know, a couple dollars here and there really does help us out. Also, please go check out our YouTube page. Um, like I said, we are trying to expand in uh, the way that we put these messages out there. So we're putting up videos of a lot of our podcasts. And I've also created lots of playlists of great videos found on YouTube that go over in more depth some of these topics that we talk about here on the show. So go check that out, guys, the MindOps YouTube page. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Um, yeah, you have to have that hyphen in there, so make sure you guys are doing that. So welcome to the show, and uh, here's a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll get going. I hope you guys are liking, too, the... Uh, the music segments that I'm adding in there. We had a really uh, awesome band, uh, the Arturo Complex, um, create these um, tracks for us, and they were um, primarily inspired by the podcast. So that's really, really cool, guys. Um, hope that you like them. And, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Here we go. The Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored by mindops.com. You can find us at www.mind-ops.com. We're an eclectic counseling company providing mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, military, through face-to-face -face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. 
We are available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. And now to the good news story. All right, folks, today's good news story comes from the Good News Network. You can find this at goodnewsnetwork.org, where we get a lot of our stories because they're awesome people and they put out good, happy stories. Today's uh, article is entitled, New Combination of Wood Fibers and Spider Silk Could Rival Plastic Out After It Outperforms in Tests. Um, this is something that's not uh, necessarily new to me. Uh, it's something that I've kind of been uh, interested in for the past decade or so when I first heard about uh, the possibilities of combining um, spider 
you know, the tensile strength of spider webs um, rivaling that of steel and, and in strength capacities and so on and so forth. So it's something that I've kind of been interested in. And uh, the, the thing that's new about this one is that they're combining wood fibers, which is a really interesting combination. Um, so it, it talks about uh, says researchers have developed a unique new material out of wood and spider silk, and since it outperforms most of today's synthetic and natural materials by providing high strength, stiffness, and increased toughness, scientists say it could one day replace plastic. We are in big need of a plastic replacement. A lot of our stuff is is uh, manufactured out of plastic and petroleum based products, and if we're ever gonna get off of this fossil fuel uh, dependency and move to a more sustainable uh, system of living, we're going to have to switch off of plastics in a lot of aspects. We can't, I don't think we can totally do it, not yet anyway, but um, some really cool uh, progress in this direction. So some quotes from the article says, we use Birch tree pulp, broke it down to cellulose nanofibrils, and aligned them into a stiff scaffold. At the same time, we infiltrated the cellulosic network with a soft and energy-dissipating spider silk adhesive matrix. Now, they didn't actually take the silk from the spider and apply it to the wood fibers. Um, they actually... Uh, manufactured it in a lab using bacteria with synthetic DNA from the spider. They say, because we know the structure of the DNA, we can copy it and use this to manufacture silk protein molecules, which are chemically similar to those found in spiderweb threads. And this also kind of points to uh, greater sustainability in this area as well, so that we're not you know, relying on um, finite resources like the number of spiders and uh, that we can manufacture this more in a lab um, so pretty cool. So it says our work illustrates the new and versatile possibilities of protein engineering. In the future, we could manufacture similar composites with slightly different building blocks and achieve a different set of characteristics for other applications. Certainly, we are working on making new composite materials as implants, impact resistance objects, and other products. Who knows, folks, maybe even bridges and buildings um, and things like that could be manufactured uh, out of these types of materials in the future. And there's a real push uh, in in talks that I've been included towards uh, more sustainable um, sourcing. And one of those includes a lot of uh, insect-based science. So this is one application of insect um, sort of uh, using modifications from insects and studying them and integrating them into our own technologies. But I've also um, heard of you know, um, f in, in regards to food shortages and uh, overcoming starvation all over the world um, and moving to more sustainable models for uh, food and nutrients, um, talking about insect proteins and getting uh, the majority of our proteins in the future from insects, which can be more sustainably managed than can uh, other forms of protein that we're currently using. So... I think that's great, great stuff, uh, impressive science, and very interesting stuff to look forward to. Okay, so today, in today's version of A Conversation With My Mind, I had this realization in the middle of a visionary experience, and so a lot of um, 
the data that was downloaded in my mind around this topic is still unfolding and still unpacking. So I'm going to try and uh, at least lay some groundwork as far as what my thinking was in this topic for you guys, and hopefully you can expand on it and come to me and we can broaden the conversation even more. So this main theme, this main idea that I've been thinking about recently and turning over in my mind is the idea around uh, the norm, okay, and how absurd uh, – the idea of the norm is so I, I, I label this uh, line of thinking the absurdity of the norm and I put the norm in quotation marks so a lot of my mental health clients and other clients uh, come to me for guidance and one of the phrases I often hear them say is I just want to be normal I just want to be like everyone else in society and I usually have to challenge that, not because it's not something to strive for if you're feeling like you are separate from the group of, you know, that is the human race, but um, I have to challenge it because uh, the norm doesn't necessarily mean um, you're living into your greatest potential. It just kind of means you're going along with the status quo. Um, and for some people, that is their potential. But for many, many people, um, going along with the norm is putting a cap uh, on what they could be achieving had they been striving for um, something beyond the norm. So in my mind, normal in the sense of populations and people and society and things like that, normal to me equates to average Okay, so this is so normal behaviors in society, uh, normal ways of thinking, normal ways of conducting business are usually the ways that the majority goes about it. Uh, it is the average. It is the uh, I don't know any other way to put it, but like the normal uh, modus operandi, the normal um, direction that people choose. So to me, normal equates to average. And when I hear the word average, I just cringe uh, because I certainly don't want to be average myself. Uh, average to me is boring, you know, um, and so why would I want to be that? And if you guys know me, you certainly know that uh, I'm not average uh, and I strive to be that way. You know, I, I try and make myself unique in so many ways. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, cultivated very authentically and and I try and uh, pursue my particular interests which are definitely uh, not uh, mainstream or the norm they're kind of um, on the outskirts or even taboo at times but I, I have frequently across my lifespan pursued things that were not normal just to make sure that I you know felt unique that I felt um, you know still a part of society but that I wasn't falling into the trappings of, uh, you know, monotonous or boring lifestyle. So to me, the term the norm is kind of absurd uh, when it is in the context of personal growth and the desire to want to continue to grow. Um, so in my mind, you know, if we're living into our potentials, we need to be seeking growth and evolution in every moment when we can evolving our mind evolving our physical self evolving our spiritual connection and our spiritual concepts and and things like that um and falling into this pattern of 
just average and status quo and just going along with what society and other people tell you you should do um, because it's normal, um, in my mind, is kind of a de-evolution. It's, uh, it's not moving yourself forward. It is capping off your progress, like I said before. So it's almost stagnating uh, your evolution and you're, you're not allowing yourself to break outside of those molds, those boxes that, that uh, we consider normal. Uh, I certainly don't want to be put in a box um, that's called normal. Uh, yeah, and that, maybe that's just my personal beliefs. But to me, I find much greater value in exploring as many possibilities and as many beautiful opportunities as there are afforded to me in this lifetime, um, I want to experience the fullest potential of the condition that is being a human. And we have very little limited time to do that. So I don't know, maybe take it on as a challenge to yourself. What can you do today outside of the norm? And uh, let's see if we can grow together, guys. Awesome. So that's been the conversation with my mind recently. Uh, we have a very, very special guest today, uh, Lauren Siovaco, um, a good friend of mine, also a fellow mental health clinician. He's a crisis intervention clinician, um, so he really deals with uh, clients in extreme states, um, whether it's manic states or uh, states of hallucination or delusion or psychosis or neur neurosis or whatever. Uh, but he primarily works with people in crisis as they're in crisis. Um, he is uh, currently uh, the director of psych psychiatric services uh, for Groove Medical, um, which is an event and festival um, psych, uh, psych services, um, um, psych services, uh, service providers. So they go to events and festivals where people could be taking drugs or, uh, there's high potential for abuse or trauma or assault or something like that. And, um, they work to help deescalate people. They work to help, um, non-invasively, you know, bring people back down to baseline, help them ground so that we don't have to revert to um, uninformed Western medical practices like, uh, you know, giving someone a tranquilizer to calm them down. Um, that is so disruptive to an individual's individ uh, their process. You know, if someone is in a psychotic state um, and they're not in any physical danger to themselves or other people. Uh, it is my belief anyway that that these types of people in these types of states can be helped to um, navigate through that without the need for um, uh, like a an intervention of sort that's that's intrusive and that stops their process uh, in its tracks. So it's very detrimental to stop people um, in their in their process. Um, so even a, a manic episode or a psychotic episode, it's still a process, and um, someone will work their way through it eventually. Uh, but when we start pumping in drugs to try and control behavior, this is really when we start to disrupt um, all sorts of. Uh, 
you know, mental schemas and stories and, and neurological processes and, and all sorts of things. We're doing a huge disservice when we do that. So he goes in there and he helps, um, uh, medical professionals and law enforcement understand also that, uh, you know, these people are not dangerous, that they just need so a little bit of guidance, a little holding hands, uh, or, you know, they need someone to help them ground. So he does that. He also has a master's degree in contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology from Naropa University. Um, I almost went through that program at Naropa but instead chose the path of sport and performance psychology and just chose to, um, you know, educate myself as much as possible, kind of as a hobby on contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology. Um, that's currently what, um, most of my, um, my psychological service provide, uh, provisions are, um, based out of those sort of frameworks. And, uh, my own belief system is, you know, highly centered around Buddhism and, and uh, shamanic and natural practices. So um, we get into a really, really interesting conversation. We break down a lot of really cool Buddhist concepts. um, And we talk a lot about all sorts of things from crisis intervention to fatherhood, um, to how Buddhist philosophy maps out consciousness, right? That's one of my um, intentions with this whole podcast is like, how do we start to come to a conceptualization or a map of consciousness? It's so vast, but I'm hoping that we can um, add to the conceptualization or at least contribute to it. Um, So we talk about that. We break it down of how the Buddhists, uh, the Tibetan Buddhists map consciousness. Yeah, we talk about uh, his, his publication, The Sanity of Addiction, and really dig into alternative perspectives on addiction beyond just the medical model, but actually seeing addiction as a normal coping process um, that most of us engage in in some form or another, and that we need to start seeing this as a normal, um, again, I'm using normal quotation marks, like a a normal uh, coping mechanism for a lot of people, um, and that there's nothing wrong with it inherently, but that we need to... Um, start shifting the way we think about it so we can reduce the stigma and allow greater access uh, to the people that need the help to get through it, you know. Um, So we talk about all sorts of things about, you know, learning new ways, how not to suffer, and all sorts of stuff like that. So I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. If you want to reach out to Lauren, uh, you can either do it through my website, mindops.com, through the comments section, Or you can email Lauren. I will have his email address in the bottom of the description. He uh, said it was okay for me to give that to you. Also, a little bit more on his background. Uh, He has a bachelor's degree in um, neuropsych from Purdue and uh, also owns and operates an open source counseling private practice out of Boulder, Colorado. Um, So strap yourselves in, guys. We're about to go really, really deep. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I did. I learned so much from Lauren, and I really hope to have him back on the show soon and uh, learn a lot more. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, so here we go, folks. Hope you enjoy the show.
This is the Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, we're back. This is Conversations with the Mind, episode 55. I'm your host, as always, Shane LaMaster. And today we're here with a very special guest and good friend, Lauren Siovaco. How are you, sir? Doing really good today, man. Um, welcome to my podcast studio. Dude, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, you're, you're the only the second person that I've uh, had the opportunity to use the new equipment with. Awesome. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's kind of fun, and I'm kind of playing with different things. So you let me know, too, if I have to, like turn up your headphones or something like that. For sure. So it's all an experiment, this whole thing we call life. Um, so the first question I ask all my guests is the same, and that is uh, what does the phrase conversations with the mind mean to you? Um, the audience already knows kind of what it means to me and how I came to bring this podcast to be. And if you folks don't know my point of view, go listen to episode one or two when I explain it a little bit better. But what does that uh, phrase in particular mean to you? How does it resonate and what comes to mind? Oh, man, such a big question. <clears throat> you know, for me, um, when I think of conversations with the mind, I think about the work that I do um, as a therapist and as a crisis intervention clinician. Um, the mind is a mystery. Um, it is this moving, changing, amorphous experience that I have found is sometimes localized here in the head. Um, but most of the time it ebbs and flows and shrinks and rushes and moves back. Um, because of my work in crisis therapy, I, I think of how this mind, this uncertain thing, too, um, can be so extreme. And that's why when I said uncertainty or mystery, is I watch the mind do miraculous things in order to not have to relate with the present moment. Oh, to try and escape yeah. some uncomfortability. Yeah. Whether it's sensory or emotional content or physical. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and when I say... Uh, Escape, you know, it's not always in that, um, it's not always in a negative way. I mean, I, I watch it move through these manic, beautiful episodes. Um, and when I, when I use any clinical language like manic, um, I'm only using those words because they're predominant in our, uh, language in the field. Um, and they describe something, but I don't pathologize that experience. Um, so when I say something manic, you know, this high energy, high vibrational, extreme state of consciousness where, Somebody's meeting God. Somebody's realizing they are God. Somebody's tapped into something bigger than themselves. And, and I see it on the opposite end. You know, somebody taps into something bigger and more beautiful than themselves, and I see the terror that that creates. Um, I see the, the different ways it unsettles people. And so I get to see this huge um, range of consciousness of mind in all kinds of different spectrums. And I actually think it's a gift because I get to see people in raw states that most people will never witness. Um, it's a gift to be able to be in those spaces a lot of times with folks. Yeah. Those extreme flows of the mind too. I mean, 
I often think of like how Dan Siegel will talk about the mind as like not being something located up here in your head as the brain, but rather um, something that uh, like can reach out. Like if I focus my uh, attention towards my foot right now, in some ways, my consciousness, my mind is now located in my foot. Um, or in the same way, when I sit with another person um, in those extreme states, when I'm helping somebody regulate, um, there's a very real experience of something moving out from me and holding them. Um, it's almost like I'm transmuting energy and that means kind of taking them into my Taurus. Um, are you familiar with the term Taurus? No, but, um, what you're describing to me just reminds me of like just holding space for people yeah. who can't hold it yeah. for themselves in the moment, you yeah. know, um, creating, you know, we talk about like creating a safe container in psychedelic work and things like that. And, you know, you don't have to be a therapist to do that. Anybody yeah. can do that if you can cultivate that empathy, cultivate that openness to do yeah. that. So what does, um, what does in particular the conversations with the mind piece, the conversations, mm -hmm. how does that reflect within your understanding of consciousness? So my background, I have a master's in um, contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology. So the way I conceptualize the mind and working with others and conversations with the mind is through a lens of, um, so there's a Buddhist teaching I was telling you about before we sat down called Pratiya Samupada. Um, Pratiya Samupada is a Tibetan Buddhist teaching um, that essentially is not one, not two. It's that kind of Zen koan um, of, um, I have this experience over here as a very separate individual um, in an existential way, I'm alone in my experience, no matter how desperately I try to communicate it to you, no matter how badly I try to communicate it to my wife, to my friends, to my family, the words are always going to be a substitute for what's really happening over here. And a poor substitute. A very poor. I actually, I sometimes say how everybody in some way is a liar because these words are never quite going to hit it. And so in that very scary and liberating way, I'm totally alone in my experience. I'm never going to know another's. Um, and that's the, I'm not one because I'm also two. Um, consciousness flows through each and every one of us. Um, the metaphor I often think of is um, we're all the ocean, and then that oneness is when we pop up like waves. We see each other for a moment and we fall back. Or like how Alex Gray would say that um, mind neural lattice, I think is how he calls it. Um, but anyways, there's this, this deep ocean we arise out of. So even though I'm over here having this very alone experience, I'm also deeply connected to you. Um, something moves through us, flows through us. It flows through all of us, and it's very easy to tap into that. So when I work with others, the conversation I'm having with the mind is I'm having conversations. I'm helping heal or work with or hold some aspect of myself in a way. So the more work I do over here to learn how to hold my grief, my loneliness, my shame, my anger, the better I'm going to be able to step into a space with another and see their mind do that dance and that play um, and make space for it, be right there with it. Because I know it's a part of me, and in a very real way, I use the knowledge that we're connected to take information about what's going on in the session. So if I'm sitting with somebody and I notice my mind starting to wander. That's not actually a typical experience I have. I'm typically very present. So if I notice that happening, I'm getting information about maybe that's what's going on for them. Maybe I'm feeling some aspect of how they're actually a little checked out or a little bored with their story or just stuck in that same kind of thing they do. 
And so I'll check and I go, hey, I'm, I'm noticing, um, I'm feeling like it's a little hard to kind of stay with some of this content. What's going on for you? And it's a powerful thing to be able to tap into this. Um, maybe it's mere neurons. Maybe it's um, kind of some kind of co-regulation going on through our like uh, right brain to right brain or I keep getting an image of, uh, have you ever seen the, the old movie, The Abyss? Yes. Yeah, you know that floating thing that goes yep. through the, yeah, through yep. the, uh, the sub or whatever? The, either that or the same plasma-looking substance like in Donnie Darko, right? Yep. That kind of flows ahead of him uh, sort of in all these, um, these perfect potentialities, uh, and he just kind of follows along uh, in its trail. That's what I'm imagining is like, like this consciousness is is you know this one mm-hmm. uh it's for sure an individual experience yeah. that's a fact yeah. um <laughs> but it's also a fact that it's a shared experience too and we have so much evidence mm-hmm. um i think that points towards that and you know it could literally look like some kind of plasma or something we because we can only see this much you know this little sliver of the visual spectrum it could be some physical floating floating thing outside of ourselves uh, stan groff talks a, a lot about um how consciousness is not local mm-hmm. and how it's sort of outside of our bodies even uh in the in the open space and we kind of pick up on things from the from the external you know what we think is space is actually full of information yes you know and that's all connectedness uh but unfortunately you know from our western mind we see it as that it's nothing yeah yeah and and, and when i said that term taurus earlier um Mm -hmm. t-o-r-u-s um taurus is uh, the energetic field that kind of emanates um so it looks like a donut around us Um, i've seen some of alex gray's stuff yeah alex gray has and the earth has one of these things too the earth has one one emanates from our hearts so i so in a yeah, very measurable way, there actually is something that kind of can we can start spinning with each other. Yeah, I think some of the um, some of the buzzword uh, phrases that people might be able to associate to that uh, it's like microbiome, mm-hmm. right? That that's a big term out there, mm-hmm. and, and our biome uh, on our skin and and all these, you know, um, you know, my biome. My physical biome extends a little bit past my body and it interacts with yours and my bacteria jump to you and yours to me and all these things. Uh, It's sort of similar except on a more like a quantum scale, um, almost uh, different dimensional. Yeah. You know, uh, I often think of the, I think of karma as consciousness. The consciousness has been flowing through time up until this present point and expressing itself in different ways. Um, it's moved through animals in different ways. Like, I think when, if we, again, use these words as a poor imposter for what's really happening, evolution might be pointing towards the movement of consciousness. Karma continues to flow, and it takes on these different changes. Um, but the essence, what's moving through, while the vessel may change, um, remains consistent, constant. I think Terrence McKenna called it the uh, transcendental object at the end of time. Hmm. something pulling us towards it and that that flow of karma i i, I think uh there's a theorist uh last name lanza who calls it biocentrism that our minds our our system is not uh like a tv where when it breaks consciousness is often just dies with us rather it's more like the antenna on the tv picking up on a signal and so when we come into this state we start channeling something. Some the consciousness starts to flow in us, but when we die, the antennas are down. But now it just moves on to something else. 
And I think that's why the psychedelic experience is actually the, the frequency changes. The mind now can gather a lot more information than what it's typically supposed to be doing. Sure. So you studied uh, neuropsych at Purdue. Yeah. And um, they take a totally different perspective, <laughs> the majority of that field, on like what the brain is. Absolutely. Right? But I'm in, in more in line with exactly what you're talking about. And I've talked about it previously on the podcast where I'm a believer that the brain is a really significant um, – Com- like computer, uh, but it's more, it acts more like a tuning fork. Yep. Like it, uh, it resonates at different frequencies. You can raise the frequency or lower the frequency and that'll change your moods. That'll change, you know, all sorts of things, the quality of your thoughts, things like that. Um, but that the neurochemistry and the electrochemical signaling in there is all part of this, uh, neurochemical computer, tuning fork and that consciousness is in fact outside of our brain and we simply just uh like you said like an antenna Mm -hmm. tune into a specific shane frequency Mm -hmm. uh when i wake up in the morning or when i'm put in this body i'm like boom you know this is the frequency that this body resonates at but it's all part of the same stream right Mm -hmm. lauren's uh you know resonating frequency comes from the same source as mine but it's just resonating at a different frequency and everyone's is different and plants are different and animals are different. And, you know, it all kind of ties very nicely into, um, like we're, we're talking about the wheel of life Mm -hmm. and, uh, Tibetan Buddhism and rebirth and, uh, the different realms, um, you can be reborn into. It all kind of connects very nicely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the way I was saying earlier, this uh, tendency for the mind to kind of want to get away from this experience, um, or, for, or for us to want to get away from this very present moment. You know, when I think of the wheel of life, I think of, you know, the three poisons right at the center, um, ignorance, aggression, and passion. And those are expressions of this. We are in this experience. We continually cycle. We keep coming back. And the thing that is a guarantee in this cycle, this, this cosmic wheel, this karma that we move through is that we will suffer. We cannot escape that. And yet we do everything in our power to escape it. And I think that's because during this incarnation of our consciousness, so like when we were a jellyfish moving through the sea, we didn't have to worry too much about getting away from, there wasn't a prefrontal cortex having a thought of this hurts. There was a system that reacted to stimulus in its environment and either moved towards or away. Right. Primitive brain. Yeah. And so I think during this itineration of us, um, we are the universe coming to know itself, as Carl Sagan said, right? We have a prefrontal that now is aware that I exist. So rather than just being this tree out there having this experience and that's it, suddenly we become self-reflective to look at ourselves. So we're the universe being like, dang, what am I doing? Like I'm a fractal with anxiety, essentially. And so we're looking back at ourselves And that's where the poisons come in. That's when the passion, aggression, ignorance come in. Because as we look at this experience, we're like, damn, that hurts. Like, whoa, have I been hurting this much this whole time? What am I doing? We start having this, maybe that's the egoic mind. Something now wants to be like, I am this and I don't want to be this. I exist and why? (laughs) I exist and do I want to? Um, A good example would be like, like, uh, if you have your dog and you're about to take the dog to the vet and you bring out the crate, put the dog in, take the, take him to the vet, he gets shots. Now he associates that crate with the shots. And when you pull it out again, he's going to be like, Mm-mm. but he won't just be sitting there and start thinking of the crate and start freaking out. He 
Whereas we can. We can. Yeah, we can run those simulations. Exactly. That's the, that's the prefrontal. The quantum uh, computer that's this infinite simulation machine that just runs all the data. We, I mean, I watch this as I sit with people in a room. I'm just sitting with another in a room just talking. And I watch as they start to talk about the thing that happened back there, the thing that's going to happen. Oh, yeah. And they create that cage right there in the spot. The nice thing I like about our brain, too, is we have that prefrontal and we also have the old brain, too. We have the ancient lizard brain, um, you know, and what, what, do we, what do you think about other, other animals that do have prefrontals? So like uh, whales, dolphins, things like that. Yeah. Do you think uh, I, I think they or actually I don't know, I don't even know if we know if they have self-awareness, but um, I've heard that their prefrontal cortexes are even larger than ours. Proportionally, I, I would not be surprised if whales are having some experience or dolphins are um, of being aware of self. Um, now, I just think ours do it in a slightly different way um, because I don't think you would find a neurotic dolphin. Now, actually, I'm going to take that back. I bet if you, I went, bet you would. I bet you, if you found one in a cage in a tank, you're going to find an erotic dolphin. Oh, yeah. Um, and that actually makes sense uh, because I think that anything with that kind of advanced processing power in their brain is going to start realizing about what's not right. And sometimes I wonder if in some ways uh, by domesticating ourselves, by putting ourselves in boxes, if we haven't made ourselves a bit neurotic. Absolutely. It's almost, I mean, we, we definitely see those trends with, uh, you know, prisoners and the prisoner population and things like that. And we still do it. You yeah. know, we still lock people in cages and expect it to rehabilitate them, but they come out much worse, yeah. um, much more neuroses. And then you're right. Like we're, we're putting ourselves in our own prisons uh, within these boxes um, and even though we're more connected on like, you know, through the internet and things like that, greater opportunity to kind of connect in that way are, are more innate and I believe more important ability to connect with face-to-face interaction is going away in favor of some of the more technological things, even further putting us in those, uh, those cyber prisons. Yeah. There's two things that I could that I want to launch on on this. Well, like one, um, I got a felony in 2008 for punching a cop. It's actually wow. It's actually how I got into meditation. Okay. So so there's that. I'm, I want to talk about tell that, that story. But then the other one is uh, I want to talk about what I think is happening with our connection to cyber uh, to technology. So 2008, I got a felony for punching a cop. I was out. I had been drinking. Um, got into an interaction with a cop. He went to assert his power over me, his dominance over me, me being a white male in our society. I was like, holy shit, nobody does this to me. You know, you can't violate my rights. <laughs> and um, I tried to resist. And when he went to cuff me, I swung on him. And uh, I, I did uh, some time in jail. And while I was, and I had been in and out of jail several times up until that for fighting primarily. Mostly I'd get drunk, I'd get into fights. My style of suffering has a lot to do with aggression and passion and ignorance, but primarily aggression. But so all these times I'd been in jail, that point was slightly different because that night he pulled his gun on me and threatened to shoot me if I didn't put my hands behind my back. So when I was sitting in that jail cell, I realized if I did not do something with my anger, I was going to end up dead or in jail, um, jail for a long, long time. And so I, 
I had been reading Buddhism up until that point a little bit, like more intellectual pursuit, no practice. What got you interested in Buddhism in the first place? Um, I've always been a seeker. I mean, since day one, I've been fascinating with, uh, fascinated with uh, truth. And but Buddhism in particular stood out to you as, as something? Well, so in the, the way that that happened, too, was I, I grew up in a more fundamentalist Catholic tradition and then moved actually into like a Southern Baptist tradition, but very fundamentalist. Um, and then I left the faith. Um, when I went to college, uh, it just didn't line up with my reason and logic, but I'd always kind of, and primarily the reason I left the church was because I was reading so many different religious texts, philosophies, and realized there were so many different ways to conceptualize this experience in so many different maps. Well, the more you learn, the more informed decision you can make. Absolutely. And so the, 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 the reaction that I had immediately was I left the faith, became an atheist, um, but something still appeared, appealed to me within Buddhism because it, I didn't have to jump through mental hurdles to, um, to, to, to reconcile it with my experience. That there wasn't this like, it just made sense in a more kind of, I started rec, uh, relating to it as a philosophy of the mind um, rather, or a science of the mind rather than a religion. But so as I was sitting in a jail cell, I remember reading something the Buddha said, Anger is like a hot stone. You want to throw it at somebody, but you get burned in the process. And here I was sitting in a jail cell being like, yeah, that burned me. You know, yeah, it felt great to hit that cop in that moment. Mm. <laughs> it was the best. Then everything after that was terrible. And so as I was sitting in that jail cell, though, I realized that the only thing that made the experience I was having painful was the fact that I didn't know how to be with myself. Because at the end of the day, I was just sitting in a room. And why was sitting in a room so absolutely painful? And so my experience was, uh, in a way, I actually learned how to meditate more as a fuck you to the system and as a rebellion. Like, if I just learn how to sit with myself, you can't really punish me. <laughs> Have you ever read uh, Dharma Punks? Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got to meet Noah one time. And, yeah, uh, me too. I collaborated on some uh, research with him. Yeah. It was awesome. He's a good guy. Good guy. I mean, there's some weird stuff came out about him recently. I remember. I, th- I haven't heard. Yeah, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let that drift. For okay, a yeah, me we'll too. Say, we'll say yeah, we'll yeah. say. But yeah, no, I mean that was that was it was a very rebellious thing of like, I'm gonna sit with myself, and then you can't take it from me. That that like that, you know. And I had this unusual experience too, where I was sitting on the other side of this these prison bars, and I was watching all the prisoners move around, but I was also watching the guards move around. And I remember thinking to myself, "You're just as trapped as I am." And I Android Jones one time I uh, used the the language. Uh, in a conversation we were having of free range slavery, like, yeah, they get to move around out there and there's a more, more illusion of freedom, but they were just as trapped. Yeah. Yeah. I, I shared on the podcast. I think it was in the last episode about uh, how New York just made um, private prisons illegal. I saw that. Yeah. First state. And uh, yeah, I unpacked it a little bit for the audience about how, um, you know, really is, Modern day slavery, um, you know, they're getting paid next to nothing. Absolutely. They have families to support as well. Um, and, you know, they're required to work in horrible conditions, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, 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 and the reason I do the work I do today is because of that experience mm-hmm. is that I, w- I, I went through the system in numerous ways and made it through uh, unscathed in a way that I would not have if I wasn't white. That's mm-hmm. absolutely the case. And I, and I know that for a fact um, is that like I, moved through that in a different way because of the color of my skin. And, and for that gift, there was a long time, a big attitude of my, my practice and my movement came out of a place of like atonement. I need to like, 
I need to make use of this gift I've been given. I need to repay uh, society for the things I've taken and the way I've behaved. Um, and then it got to a point where I was like, that, that was just some other trap too. I let that go. Um, but being in a cell is what actually moved me towards learning how to actually have a conversation with my own mind. Um, how to actually start coming into relationship with this beautiful, very intense experience and learn how to hold it, learn how to become my own safe space, um, learn how to uh, find home, sanctuary, base, whatever, to be able to come back here and be like, it's okay, I've got me. Because um, I think that egoic, that prefrontal, that, that very uh, separate kind of brain that isn't aware of how connected it is to all this, or it is, and it's like, nope, it hurts. I don't want to touch it. Um, that was keeping me trapped, and so I started just learning how to let that go a little bit more, relax back here, and, yeah, by coming back to this experience and learning how to hold um, every different emotional, sensational, energetic experience I was having in new and new ways, uh, allowed me to begin able to step into a room with another person and watch their mind do the same dance and be like, oh, I'm very familiar with this. And it's not a problem. Absolutely mm -hmm. not a problem. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm also, I mean, you know, I'm also a clinician too. And yeah. sitting in the room with people, um, whether they're in their prefrontal cortex, but it's all over the place, or, you know, I see a lot of people operating still in their primitive systems too, yeah. addiction driven, you know, things like that. And, um, it's interesting because I too have a lot of personal experience in the realms of the shadow yeah. in the realms, you know, I, my story is so similar to yours. You know, I found Buddhism right after a jail experience. I had a white, my first ever white light experience yeah. in a jail cell. And I had to have that in order to see that addiction was my, or that alcohol was my issue, you know? Yeah. Um, I sat in a jail cell and was like, Oh, maybe I'm not a person who can drink. Yeah. I mean, right. I had to do it like 10 times. Right. I was like, why do I keep fucking up? How does this equation where, Oh, alcohol is involved in every single one. Oh, let me see what it looks like if I remove that <laughs> problem solved you know now i'm thriving again you yeah. know so um yeah but it's it's just interesting because um actually i just lost where i was gonna go no that's that. cool because i got a jump off point i mean yeah, we're yeah. talking about addiction here being in a cage yeah yeah and for me um that experience i had that jail experience it wasn't the last one I had. I wish I could say it was, mm -hmm. but there was another one after that. And this one actually happened when I was working on my master's and actually really getting into a strong Buddhist practice. So for mm -hmm. my master's um, in contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology, we did two-week meditation retreats every semester for the three years we were in there. Um, and I had never been on a meditation retreat. Um, first day on meditation retreat, we sat for seven hours. I'd, I had never sat for more than 15 or 20 minutes. So, I mean, they drop you right in there. But so I got arrested once for another night of drinking. Now, luckily, this one didn't go as bad as the ones in the past. But, yeah, I was in my, my master's program, uh, got arrested. And so I'm sitting there in jail and being like, all right, you know, you called. You actually created this in some way. You said you were learning how to meditate so you could handle being in jail. Well, here you go. And so I sat there with my experience. And I, man, I want to say I advise people to try this out, if, but man, you better be willing to feel some intense pain because sitting with my experience in that jail cell, I noticed all the, all of it. I noticed the shame, the anger, the embarrassment, the sadness, the loneliness, the isolation. 
I noticed the thoughts that were like, you're broken, you're a monster. How could you do this? You're meditating, you're studying compassion, you should be different, all that. And then I also noticed the gaps, the slight gap that existed between each of those emotions, each of those thoughts. And that was the space where I realized um, I was already free. That was the space where I realized there was no problem. I mean, to put words on that space is contrived. And maybe that, that space is the deep well of consciousness that lies underneath us, the like... Yeah, I feel, yeah, go ahead. And everybody has this experience as well, you know, um, in our daily breathing, you know, even that teeny tiny little gap between either the in-breath or the out-breath, most people don't even pay attention to that. They either, you know, they're so focused on the actual action of breathing. Yeah. So same thing with consciousness, you know, we're always so focused on the action of the mind when in that space in between in the gaps, that's where the the real compressed data is, right? Like yeah. that's the zipped drive uh-huh. files right that's and you tap into that and you you know through meditation i've learned to um not only pay attention to and watch those gaps but learn to um extend the gap yeah. and learn to stay in the gap longer and longer mm-hmm. um i tell this story sometimes i met a uh, a buddhist monk in thailand once and i was just talking to him about his mm-hmm. meditation practice he was like in his 70s he said he'd been practicing meditation for 50 years And, uh, he says, and we're talking about the empty space Mm -hmm. and he said, you know, I only engage in about five thoughts a day. I'm like, what? He's like, I still have all the, all the thoughts, but I pay more attention to the, to the space between, Mm -hmm. you know, and if a really interesting thought does come up, then Mm -hmm. sure, I'll, I'll indulge a little bit and, and use my theory on it. But I thought it was amazing. Like how amazing would it be if, if we could, only focus on the thoughts that we wanted to. And so I remember what I was trying to think of. You were talking about our human ability to hold everything, all the feelings, all the thoughts, and uh, how dysregulation sometimes is just someone's inability to hold that in the moment. And um, that's kind of been what I've been fascinated with psychology the most is not just learning what that's about and understanding that, but learning how do we master those spaces within ourselves so that I can go in there and kind of like be the master of puppets and yeah. start tinkering with things and like, mm-hmm. I'm going to turn up the volume on this thing yep. and I'm going to turn down the volume on this addiction and turn up the volume on this mm-hmm. uh, mental toughness and turn down the volume on these other things. Right. So going in and being able to literally tinker and optimize yourself optimize your experience. Yeah. That's kind of been my interest in psychology this whole time and psychedelics is the bridge for me to be able to do that. You know, I go into those spaces and get so much information, but also I get to experiment in those spaces, right? And that's where I think your VR stuff is going to be huge is it's going to be another platform for people who like to experience and explore these inner verses, these inner spaces, and go in there and tinker and experiment and be like, how can I apply this mindfulness technique here and get the optimization that I'm looking for? Absolutely. Uh, And that tinkering you're talking about, uh, for me, um, you're talking about the freedom inherent in our experience. I mean, this is the one of the most terrifying things uh, clients come in contact with or any of us come in contact with is the fact that we are free to do whatever we want. And most of our life is primarily a reaction. Um, It's a habituated automatic brain system that learned what hurt a long time ago, knows how to avoid it really well. The default mode network. The default mode network, yeah. I mean, 
that network is pretty dialed in and knows exactly how to dart away from the experience quickly. And for me, this rebellion, this act of rebellion of like, I'm gonna learn how to meditate to jail cell doesn't cause me pain was also realizing, um, I mean, I'm a rebel, but a lot of my rebellion was reactions. You set a boundary. I mean, humans don't like being told what to do, but I really don't like being told what to do. And so somebody gives me a sit down, I'm going to stand up. And for a long time, this anti-authoritarian, this rebellion in me, uh, I, I loved. But then I realized it was just another trap, too, because it was my rule was that I broke the rules. And so in order to break my own rule, I had to start following them. If everybody followed that, I mean, this this practice of discipline of like, I'm not going to engage that alcoholic drink right now. Uh, I'm going to do this choicefully. A big part of it for my my sobriety, um, after I had that jail experience, I got clean from alcohol for a year and a half. Actually, clean from everything for a year and a half. Um, and I came back, and now I can have a beer. Uh, you know, I've never really drank more than three. I don't like liquor anymore at all. I had a drink. I felt the sensations that it caused in my body and was like, nope, not doing that. And so I stay away from liquor, but I have beers. Um, I re- in Tibetan Buddhism, or in Buddhism, there's the, um, the Eightfold Path, like right livelihood, right concentration, right effort. Um, right in those contexts is not right or wrong. Rather, the Tibetan translation is um, like writing a wheel, rebalancing. Yeah, so right means that middle way, that balance. Yeah, yeah right is not right or wrong. In, in, in all Buddhism, dichotomy is always the illusion, right? <laughs> so, so right and wrong is one of the essential dichotomies and is such an illusion. Nothing is right or wrong. Yeah. Um, I like how you say it's, it's more about riding the wheel or rebalancing yeah. because I know for me, um, I could never go back to alcohol, yeah. you know, just, just for yep. me, because I know that, you know, without alcohol, mm-hmm. I feel balanced. Yep. <laughs> I feel right. Yep. Like the, the alcohol is what yep. knocked me off balance. Yep. Um, I was like the way I am now, um, very focused and driven and ambitious and things. And, um, you know, that's how I was when I was a kid. Yeah. And that's what I loved about myself yeah. as a kid. And then I lost that through alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then without it, I kind of just rebalanced. Like yep. now I'm back on track, you know. Yep. And, and and what's beautiful about that experience, too, is in this autonomous way, you decided what was right for you. And it was a choice. And for me, my freedom lies in the ability to choose. Maybe I'll have a drink. Maybe I won't have a drink. But it's a constant um this this freedom that we have is it's constantly coming more and more in touch with like when you talk about that 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 70 year old buddhist i believe that process he was having of watching his thoughts and then choosing which one he was engaging is his freedom because when we talk about right or wrong that there is no good or bad that the paradox is what's happening um i think of alan watts saying you know the materialist you know the wall street banker rolling around on his boat having beers probably needs to go hang out in a monastery for a little bit but then the monk up in the monastery probably needs to come down and hang out and have a blast for a moment. And so that, that choiceful process of watching his thoughts, saying the thinking mind isn't problematic, um, it can be that way. But now I have choice of like, that thought's not going to help me out. And, and it's so cool as you, like, you'll sit in meditation and you can watch your mind go, oh, I know how that one goes and let it go. Or actually, no, I kind of feel like engaging that one for a minute because those, those moments are beautiful too because I watch a thought go and I work with it and flow with it and it turns into something beautiful. Oh, absolutely. You know, that I'm like, oh, I got to write that down now. But then I sit and hold the impulse and, and watch myself want to write it down and 
Maybe I do, maybe I don't. If it's worth keeping, it stays. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I think this is a a good place to segue into The Sanity of Addiction. And this is a paper that you wrote and published um, that I really, really connected with because it was something that I had personally felt or held true. And um, I want for the audience to first check in with yourself and just uh, as Lauren describes sanity of addiction and his perspective on addiction. I want you guys to also see how this can apply to your very own thinking. Um, and if you think that your thinking is wrong, you know, uh, we oftentimes guilt trip ourselves and, and create a lot of unnecessary suffering just because we think that the way we th- are thinking is wrong. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, go ahead and unpack that for us. Cause I found it. I share that article with all my coworkers. Oh, dope. Yeah. I print oh, it out and I just hand it out. Yeah. I actually give it, I give it to a lot of folks. Um, specifically if they're suffering with addiction, but I really do think um, the groundwork and foundation in that paper applies to all kind of styles of mental suffering. Well, yeah, because we get addicted to thought patterns too. Absolutely. And addicted to thought states, and, you know, that's probably an addiction that most of us engage in, period. Absolutely. I mean, my I I often joke, and it sometimes is taken, people get really pissed sometimes when I say this, but nobody's sober, <laughs> you know, and what I mean by that is we're all constantly doing things so that we do not have to touch parts of our experience. uh, We are constantly trying to get away. Now, addiction is a specific style of suffering. Um, So what I proposed, uh, the paper was published in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. The title was The uh, Sanity of Addiction, Humanistic and Contemplative Reflections on the Surgeon General's Report of Drugs. (laughs) The title. Essentially, the Surgeon General came out with his, and, and I co-authored this with um, Dr. Uh, uh, Shannon Hughes, too. I just want to name her. Um, you know, she read this paper that I had worked on during my master's. She saw it. She helped me tighten it up. She helped me really refine it in a way where she was the one that made it a targeted response to the Surgeon General's report. You know, that came out, and we saw what it said. And essentially, they came out and said addiction is a disease. Which, uh, that, that's huge. A lot of people, that really needed to happen for it's, Yeah, it's very helpful for a lot of oh, reasons. Yeah. For people to be able to get the medications mm-hmm. that they need, to get insurance, to be able to cover absolutely. the treatments. It increases access to care, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and it's a much needed uh, framework so that we start bringing a bit more compassion to this process that is very human, very natural. And so essentially what I said in the paper was, well, this was a huge step forward, and it further destigmatizes addiction, which we need. The problem is, is that the Surgeon General and most people are still relating to addiction in a very dichotomous way. Um, it's either a moral failing or a disease. But both of those suck. <laughs> both of those make us the location of the problem, um, rather than they both give us shame. And they, yeah, they can both um, shape into self-fulfilling prophecies, too. I mean... How many times have you seen in your clinical practice clients come in and say, I'm bipolar, I'm ADD, Mm -hmm. I'm depressed, all these things. I'm like, well, how do you know that you are those Mm -hmm. things? Uh, These people diagnose me with it. So once you receive a diagnosis, a lot of people will start to identify with it and then self-perpetuate those neurotic behaviors rather than disidentifying from the label and just dealing with the experience. Yeah, and and for me, this this thing that I saw going on in the addiction field, this – you know, disease or moral failing is the age old philosophical question we've been having since day one. Are humans uh, free? Do we have free will or is our path determined? D- disease That's goes. That's a huge question. I love that question. Right? I've been thinking about it recently. Oh, it's, it's my favorite. And, you know, in this, this, this thing we were saying earlier about uh, reaction and response, choicefulness, uh, you know, 
for me, I was looking at this, well, is, do we always have free will? Um, are we determined? And I was seeing like, again, back to the Buddhist paradox, it's both, you know, um, you could think of it like, um, essentially what ends up happening is in our first 18 months of our lives, our lower brain forms. Um, it forms the data, the hardware of what is safe, what is not safe. Uh, just to just to back up real quick, um, because I believe in Buddhist philosophy, the consciousness actually enters the vessel of the human through uh, the passing of the the infant through the birth canal, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like that, it's like uh, like a, almost like a crown being placed yeah. on the infant is how it's kind of described, yeah, yeah. and that's the moment of consciousness. So in Buddhist belief systems, um, there is no conscious life before the actual birth. Yeah. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, essentially, yeah. So the soul leaves the body for 49 days. It's in a bardo gap where it's just kind of floating out there in that the sea of consciousness mm -hmm. and then, yeah, re-enters during that period. Okay. And, now, and I am not by any means a Tibetan Buddhist expert. Sure. <laughs> Neither so one of us are expert or there's scholars. There's probably some scholar out there going, that's totally wrong. <laughs> but, guys. <laughs> but so that, that – um, that 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 we we incarnate into this experience mm -hmm. and the brain starts to figure out how am I safe, how am I okay? So it's it forms that hardware. So for the rest of your life, you have pretty good data that helps you engage with your environment. That eighteen months, if your parents aren't totally present, um, and what I mean by that is that if mom is depressed and she's sad and she's crying and baby starts crying and mom gets more and more depressed, more and more absent, more and more stressed, more and more angry, baby learns that this sensational data going on in here, these felt experiences are not safe. If I feel this thing, mommy moves away. And as a baby lying in a crib, desperate for its needs to be met by you, totally dependent on the parent, if she moves away, if, if dad moves away, they learn, okay, I'm not going to do that because then mom comes back. But all of that happens in a nonverbal, all this lower brain. So that, that because this forms in the first 18 months of your life and never matures after that, everything actually matures and stacks on top of that. This is why we all retain the ability to act like a two-year-old in a moment's notice is we drop right into that lower brain of what was going on way back then because we're like, oh, if I feel this, somebody's going to move away. Somebody's going to punish me. I will die. We take it as a death threat. So what is your what are your thoughts then on um, – because I've heard like two meth – and you're a new father too, so you yeah. have some insight in this, yeah, right? Yeah, I've been watching um, it happen. Right, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about – doing research and stuff in the nine months after I find out, like, how do I best do this? And I'm sure everyone does that. But um, the idea that, you know, in order for a baby to learn how to self-soothe and get that programming, mm -hmm. you know, when they start crying, not necessarily always going in and meeting the, the infant's needs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can see both sides, mm -hmm. how going in and meeting the needs pre-programs in their mind that these feelings are safe, like yep. you're talking about, yep. and my needs will be met. Um, but also, I also see value in the idea of, letting the baby have the feelings, mm -hmm. learn how to self-soothe or learn to fully go through the process and come out the other end and be like, okay, I'm still okay. Yeah. You know, kind of, and this is similar to the psychedelic work uh, you do at festivals, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, stopping someone's uh, psychedelic journey work mid process is one of the worst things we can do. <laughs> Same with, uh, you know, manic episodes, all that mm -hmm. stuff. If you mm -hmm. stop mm -hmm. and halt those processes with drugs, yeah. you are doing so much damage to that person's uh, psyche and yeah. process and you're setting them way back. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, this process of uh, the the child learning how to hold these emotional experience. If this the, the hardware that gets set in that eighteen months sends echoes through our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and if you want to talk about karma in a very immediate kind of way, the patterns that you learn then you start engaging throughout your life, and they pick up karmic energy, or in a very neuroscience way, the path gets myelinated. Mm-hmm. The, that 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 it sick, gets well worn. Well worn. Mm-hmm. I mean, it becomes a highway in your brain. So karma, neuroscience, however you want to look at it, there is a the winds of karma pick up, the myelinated neuron starts moving fast, and you just start going with the thing you know best. Um, if I stop crying, mommy comes back all right, through the rest of my life. Every time I get sad and I notice somebody moving away, I stop. And if my needs are important and I don't name them to you, all right, you come back. But then I never learn how to actually hold my sadness. A baby needs to be trained. <sighs> A baby's nervous system cannot hold the intensity of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so it looks to the parents to help learn how to regulate these internal states. Um, So for me, that's a process of both holding your child when they're distressed because they need you to regulate. Their mind needs to feel your mind and the safety and nurturance and warmth that you hold. And then it learns how to hold it. But then also that means, um, you know, you can't rush in and hold them every time they cry. I mean, secure attachment comes through letting child go in some way. Now, I think some people sometimes rush into that process a bit too fast. Um, I'm not a fan of, like, the cry it out method. Actually, I mean, I'll just put it out there right now. Do not let your baby just sit in a crib and cry. Mm-hmm. And there's – so the process I do is a combination of both. So as my children started to – so they're one-year-old right now. They just had their birthday, August 23rd, twins. And when they – would be distressed. I'd come in and I kind of did like a, uh, and there's um Dan Siegel students. I can't remember the title of the book now have this thing called the soothing ladder where you come in and maybe you just replace a pacifier or maybe you stroke their back or maybe you put a blanket on them, whatever, or give them like a stuffy um, soothing things that you can do without picking them up. But it came to a point where for me, I, I would do is if my children were extremely distressed and I was really not trying to train this of like, I will pick you up because picking them out of their crib, they'd start to become less sleepy. And then I started rewarding this thing of like, oh, you're crying, you come out and they knew what was going on. So what I started doing was a slow process of I would come in and instead of picking them up, I would just actually sip. I would do what I do with people when they're in intense drug experiences sometimes is I just sat with them. And so what I did is I just put my hand on their back. If they were laying on their bellies crying, I put my hand on their back and I would just sit there and keep my hand on them and they'd cry, but I'd offer them my warmth. My Sometimes I'd offer like, I'm right here with you, baby girl, you got it. And it's really interesting. We had them, my, me and my wife had them sleeping through the night pretty quickly just by doing that. Mm. Um, so yeah, you were literally using that, um, maybe that collective consciousness sensor <laughs> going out yeah. to, to share that experience yeah. and, and help your two children tap yeah. into your calmness. Yeah. Uh, so in psychology, in, with adult relationships, we would call this like co-regulation, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I'm going to stay calm in this mm-hmm. argument in order to eventually you're yeah. going to, you know, you will mirror me and do what I'm doing. Absolutely. Um, so I mean, we use that in conflict resolution as well too. It's the same thing I do with when I sit with clients is um, I'm giving them an energetic hug. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, because in, in therapy, you know, we don't get the luxury of having touch. I, you know, I, some therapies. Some therapies. Some therapies. Man, I saw, I did a Stan Groff workshop, a uh, breath work with him, and yeah. I got to witness him and his wife yeah, go around yeah, and yeah. do somatic interventions mm-hmm. on people. And man, people were having huge yeah. traumatic releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was amazing. And I 
sorry, Stan Groff, but I stole some of your <laughs> techniques when I watched them and I use them now too. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously with permission yeah. and everything, but if, if that's something that clients need, then that, mm-hmm. uh, that touch type therapy is highly underutilized because of our standards and practices and closed mindedness in, in our profession. Absolutely. And, and, and me being, uh, you know, I working with such extreme states that I do touch is a very last resort intervention simply yeah. because, you know, me being a large white male, most people's perpetrator in their life probably looks something similar to me. I mean, I, I like to joke I'm 60% bro. I mean, you probably, <laughs> probably had some experience with a guy like me. And so touch can be really unsafe for people in those states. So I've had to learn how to really rely on not a thinking mind, but also not a somatic touch, but rather some energy. I mean, there was a guy I was working with one time. He came in, police brought him to the walk-in clinic that I work at. Um, he was intoxicated on meth. I mean, and this dude, probably one of the most floridly psychotic kind of experiences on meth, on any drug really I'd ever seen. I mean, he was having, he was responding to internal stimuli, having so essentially having conversations with people not there. Um, he was having conversations with the mind too. Having conversations with something that was painful. I mean, and he was, I mean, he's yelling at people in the other room, but he was engaged with me. But during the process, like telling me like, you know, man, I'm having a really hard time trusting you and, 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 like I know tentacles are just going to explode out of your head in a minute and all your friends are going to come out here and jump me. And, you know, and I'd just be like, Oh, sounds really scary, man. Like, you know, and I just kept sitting with him as he worked through this experience. Well, about an hour into it, he remembers that he has an antipsychotic with him that his psychiatrist had prescribed called Zyprexa. And when he told me he had, he's like, do you think I should take it? I'm like, look, I can't give medical advice, but it might help. <laughs> and you know, you're prescribed it. So he took it and it took him about 30 minutes to kind of, start to look like he was going to fall asleep. But at that 30 minute mark, his eyes started to close and started to close and he looked like he was drifting off, but something was holding back. And I said this to him, I said, it looks like you're about to doze off. What's going on? Why don't you want to fall asleep? He goes, well, man, I'm just really afraid to fall asleep right now because I'm scared what's going to happen to me once I fall asleep. And I said to him, you know, my man, like I've got you protected spiritually, energetically on all levels. Like you can just go ahead and crash. And and he fell asleep and, you know, he, he, like he needed to know that he was held in all these spaces because he was having a very spiritual, energetic, non-consensus reality. It wasn't like a, the body wasn't safe necessarily or the mind. It, he was having some kind of otherworldly experience in my that, that meth just happened to tap him into some other extreme state. It changed his vibration. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The and so, yeah, he was, he was probably literally seeing things that were there, mm-hmm. but were, uh, you know, like other dimensional yeah. again on a different wavelength, different yeah. frequency. And that's where for me, like the reason I bring this up is because I'm sitting with somebody I'm having to engage skill sets that aren't explainable in a very Western psychotherapeutic lens, yeah. you know, because when I'm sitting with them in those states, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, uh, big wings coming out of my back, kind of holding the space. You know, I am literally kind of planning myself and saying, like, you know, nothing's coming in here right now that's going to harm this guy. And that's physically, but definitely, I mean, spiritually, energetically. And so, yeah, I'm working on a lot of different levels. So that's why when I'm able to set my hand on my daughter or just be in the room with her when she's cr- my daughter is when they're crying, um, I'm energetically holding them. You do not have to rush in and pick up your children. But then also most people, again, re- relate with children and helping others in two very extreme ways, either extreme coddling and nurturance or very cold and aggressive and perpetrator kind of energy of like, stop it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and nobody really knows how to hold the wisdom of both of those perspectives. You know that uh, Stephen Cartman drama triangle with the victim at the bottom? I don't think so. Okay, so Stephen Cartman, he has this, um, it's called the dreaded drama triangle, and it's what ends up happening in most households when clients triangulate with you and their parents and all this is that there's a triangle uh, on, like, the left corners, like, perpetrator, on the right corners, rescuer, and then at the bottom is victim. And these are the two styles of relating with somebody that are neurotic styles um, in the sense of yeah, the so you have a client come in and mom and dad want them to stop doing their thing and dad's response. And I'm using just standard gender ideological world right here, but this could be either person, but dad is very cold and saying, just stop it. Pick yourself up. Stop being a baby. You, you know, mom saying, Oh, he's, he can't control this. He's got a mental illness and like doesn't set any healthy boundaries with them, with the client. Um, those two styles are how a lot of people relate to, energies that they have not worked in themselves emotional energies thoughts feelings experiences they don't know how to touch and there's the aggressive way of saying stop that because i like that's anger energy right if i get loud and big enough you'll stop doing the thing that's disturbing me or the rescuer way of like let me pick you up let me coddle you let me take all that away from you you don't have don't be sad i've got this like let's go get some ice cream um but both aren't helpful but both are necessary mm-hmm. when expressed in their wisdoms you know the wisdom of rather than perpetrator is um the i believe it's the challenger like giving people some information of like look i'm not trying to hurt you you just need to hear this and it's not going to feel good mm-hmm. or the rescuer wisdom of coach you know like you could rescue somebody from a bad decision they're making or you could sit there with them and say hey i'm gonna help you see the options you could do this or you could do this. I trust you're going to choose. So you don't victimize them, but you also don't, but you don't victimize them and you give them the, the information to make a decision for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so all that boiled down to me just sitting there with my daughters, you know, on a nonverbal, just back to basics level. I'm just putting a hand on them saying, I'm right here with you. So coach, rescuer, whatever, you know, that energy is there. I'm, I got you. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pick you up, too, because you're you going to challenge this. them to, to do it themselves. You got this. You got this. You're brilliant. You're gorgeous. You're my kid. Yeah. You got this. Yeah. Nice. OK, I think that's a good spot for us to uh, take a quick commercial break. So we'll be right back with segment number two. As we take a quick break from Conversations with the Mind, I just want to let you know that this award-winning episode of the podcast is brought to you by MindOps. So go check out the MindOps website, M-I-N-D-O-P-S. Now back to the show. All right, folks, we're back for segment number two with Lauren, and uh, we're talking about your article, Sanity of Addiction. And what really stood out to me and what um, I guess really connected me with the article Oh, if you guys can hear that, my co-host Ty is barking. He, he sometimes chimes in. He likes to be heard on the podcast too. It's another form of consciousness, consciousness like contributing to this thing. So, uh, so the thing that I liked about it the most is that it wasn't taking this approach where it was saying like the addict is at fault in some way, whether genetically yeah. or you know by will, by choice. Mm-hmm. But instead, it was saying that. The formation of addiction mm-hmm. is absolutely a normal response, um, and that it is, you know, it's 
pretty much you were you were normalizing it as yeah. and saying that you know addiction is not this thing that we need to look down on mm-hmm. people about that it's something that we all engage in at different levels um yeah and i thought that was that was the most fascinating piece of it yeah i appreciate you i mean like i was saying with the determinism free will this like the sh- the shame that's inherent in disease and in 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 moral failing for me it's a sane addiction arises out of a sane desire to not want to suffer that when we're in pain especially like when we go back to this example i'm using of children and how that sets the framework is that if this experience is unsafe if 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 i mean when you look at people struggling with really truly deep di- addictive patterns um that they feel like they can't control they have huge traumas on their background huge experiences that it was desperate to need to get away from that this pattern a survival. a survival either you do this or you're going to die yep exactly and so they they learned a way to not have to deal with the pain that was right here and the pro- and and that to me is completely normal it's completely sane to not want to hurt unfortunately what ends up happening is that pattern that you used to get away from that suffering and pain then is now still happening because that path myelinated the winds of karma picked up it got locked in it kept you safe so you keep doing it but now it's maladaptive now it's having lots cuz i cuz the the desire to not want to suffer is sane, but that does not mean I allow that I will say that the behavior is sane. The desire to not want to suffer is sane. The behavior is where we got to just have a like a critical eye and say, is that helpful right now? Is that working? Right. And and at first, um, you know, the addictive behavior starts out as something that is beneficial, mm-hmm. something that has a positive effect on your yep. consciousness, on your body. It relieves pain, you know, emotional, psychic, yeah. spiritual, physical. Um, but then it reaches that tipping point uh, mm-hmm. for some of us where it becomes more destructive for sure. Absolutely, uh, absolutely toxic within our body, especially yep. with alcohol. Alcohol, you know, that's the one that I engage in the most. It's the worst one. It is the worst one. <laughs> Way worse than all the it's rest the of them. Um, the that worst. one and tobacco, too. I had finally quit cigarettes. Nice. Congrats, yeah, yeah, man. Dude. The day I found out about just one daughter, you know, then oh, it turned into that's two. So, that's yeah, such a great motivator, too. Yeah, I tried quitting like 10 times up until that point. Yeah, you. it's just you find something that'll mm-hmm. do it. You know, I quit um, tobacco uh, January 1st of this nice. year. Nice. Yeah, that's sweet. And the thing, that, the thing that sucks about tobacco is how versatile it is at being a thing that helps you get away from a thing. Sure. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's a very socially acceptable one that I can do all throughout my day. Caffeine, too. Yeah. yeah. yeah I Here, mean, let me escape from my um, feelings of lethargy or, yeah. you know. Well, and that's why I think that, like, we're all trying. There is a very narrow box that our consensus consensus reality is our kind of default mode and there is a very kind of limited box that our society has made a space that you're allowed to be in it's almost like a shared vr space yeah. where everyone can connect yeah and, and and so because there's a very limited bandwidth there of like you can you they're like you can drink on the weekends but not too much you can have caffeine but don't do meth yeah, well you, <laughs> you can have meth it's, it's, if it's prescribed yeah called deoxone they oh, prescribe, wow. prescribe that to six-year-olds but oh, um, and yeah adderall ritalin mm-hmm. all the same yeah and so you know there's very limited states of consciousness that, that we're allowed to be in but um most of the control the societal control that gets um, exerted upon us is telling us which states we can be in i mean i believe that the dsm in a way is it's pathologized 
states of consciousness that it doesn't know how to handle or is labeled uh, problematic. So for the listeners out there, the DSM is our st- uh, diagnostic manual that we use in counseling and yeah. psychotherapy. So it's how we um, determine based off of the mm-hmm. symptoms that, that our clients present, sort of yeah. what category they would traditionally fall into uh, if you were to use a Western psychotherapeutic mm-hmm. lens, more like the Sigma Freud type of... Uh, analysis, psychoanalysis, right? And that's only one framework, but it's the most widely used. The here most in the predominant, West, yeah. Which most is unfortunate. The most predominant. Because it is putting people in boxes and yeah. it's putting people, giving people labels that they don't need. Um, you know, it's overprescribed, leading mm-hmm. to overprescribing for ADD, ADHD, yeah. which I don't even know if that's, you know, maybe it's one of those. Um, what did you say? Uh, non-pathology, right? Like <laughs> this kid just has more energy. Like yeah. give him something to yeah. do. Like yeah. don't put him on freaking meds because you're having a problem dealing with his energy. Again, and uh, I mean, and it's so interesting because what I what I articulated in the sanity of addiction to me is a no-brainer kind of just when I look at it, it's like, well, no shit, this is what's going on. Um, and when I originally. Um, kind of identified this like addiction arises out of a sane desire to not want to suffer. Um, alcohol, we don't have to feel grief. For example, you drink some alcohol, you don't have to feel grief. You get away from that experience because you never learned how to hold it. But again, like when we're talking about the ADHD child, um, cause I've been starting to kind of like realize how this thing that I was identifying with the sanity of addiction really applies to all states of mental suffering. Um, is that something hurts here. We want to get away. Um, now, ADHD, I really like uh, the way Gabor Mate kind of I, articulates what's going on with ADHD, is that when you are a small child, if suffering is occurring in your home, you have three options for how to deal with it. You can fight it, you can run from it, or you can check out, right? Fight, fight, freeze. And so if dad is abusive, for example, you're not, you can't fight him. You are, I mean, if you're a one-year-old, if you're a two-year-old, you're not fighting him, nor are you running from him because nobody, you don't know where to go. You have nowhere. So you check out. And so he says that a lot of ADHD arise in early childhood trauma, early adverse experiences. Mm. And so those adverse experiences, when you start again, some people might have that adverse experience and at some point learn alcohol actually gets me away from this pretty easy. But the ADHD child, quote unquote, might just be like, I'm checking out of here. This is uncomfortable. This is painful. I don't, this, the brain can't tell the difference between emotional and physical pain. So it's going to do whatever it has to. Pain is pain. Pain is pain. Escape, escape, escape. And then for me, so I don't orient to pathology. I orient to the inherent sanity, dignity, and health within us all. And that whatever mode of suffering you are dealing with is your way that you learned how to not have to suffer and now it's causing you problems, but it arose out of a sane desire and whatever your style is. So ADHD, for example, if that's your style, it's also your gift. And so the thing that we always take a risk with when we medicate something, when med- see drugs are drugs are drugs. And that's the thing is that if you're going to shame the person who's using meth or heroin to not have to feel their pain, we have to be really curious about what process is happening with antidepressants, with antipsychotics. Antipsychotics, you know, I'm not saying drugs don't have a place. Drugs can be very useful, but they're tools, and they're not panaceas, and they're not pathopathogens. They're being misused and overused for situations where they're not appropriate. Exactly. Like if an SSRI will help you stay alive for six months, then, yeah, let's do it. Or 
yeah, the you know ketamine uh, therapies are known to snap people right out of uh, suicidality and things like that. Yeah, Did you guys it, use that in your clinic, by the way. Uh, not in my clinic. I, okay. I work with some folks who use that, yeah. um, but it's really not. I mean, right now, ketamine treatment is really for the only really privileged. I mean, it is. It's so expensive. Yeah. And I and I work with um, the most marginalized and vulnerable. I mean, the majority of my population is Medicaid. So that's another thing I'm I'm going to be trying to work on through my dissertation at CSU is um, trying to open up access to uh, ketamine therapy yeah. in particular because it is already legal and it's uh, classified as a breakthrough drug, um, you know, with the FDA and uh, World Health, Health Organizations mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's off patent, so you yep. can use it for that kind of stuff. And to try and lobby for greater access so that we can bring the cost down, maybe get it uh, covered by insurance. I mean, that would be huge because I think that the gift that comes with um, the psychedelic experience, um, again, recognizing that drugs are drugs are drugs and each are tools. Some help us get away from an experience, but some help us actually come to it. You know, some powerful things can happen in the psychedelic space because you're actually starting to work with and be with an experience that maybe you've been avoiding. So that grief that alcohol helped you get away from acid is not going to let, like if you do some LSD, that grief is going to be right up there in your face. It's going to be amplified for sure. But it's, it's, uh, it's a way to, if you go into it with intention to give yourself the opportunity and the space to carve out, to work on the thing, Mm -hmm. to actually resolve it rather than to just kind of sweep it under the rug for a temporary time. And, And that's where, you know, the way that it allows you to, I mean, when you take a psychedelic, you are introducing a psychosis, a short-term psychosis. You're introducing a short, and and the way we're defining psychosis here, uh, not to be confused with the, the way the general population understands psychosis yeah. as meaning like crazy. Psychosis simply means a change in your psyche, like um, away from what your normal everyday psyche is. That is a uh, considered psychosis. Yeah. So like a flow state could technically be considered psychosis, right? If it's if it's abnormal mm-hmm. from the, yeah. the baseline. So just to put that out there that when you're talking about it, right? Yeah, well, no, and I appreciate you naming that because, um, you know, the language that I use, I'm steeped in because of, um, you know, this is the way we build. This is the way we put people into, this is the way I, if I, my limited way of communicating to others what's going on with somebody in a very traditional paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, if I say, oh, I think this person's actually going through a spiritual emergence and working with unconscious projections from their inner child, like, you know, somebody's You're not going to get paid for that <laughs> session, <laughs> you know, you get, yeah. not from Medicaid. Well, and, and here's the other thing is that, um, you know, I'm the director of psychiatric services for a large event medical team that works these music festivals here in Colorado. Um, just did arise the largest outdoor camping festival in Colorado, 14,000 people. Um, when I first started stepping into those spaces and I was like the Naropa therapist wanting to, you know, work with extreme states of consciousness and the flow of the mind, you know, I was this hippie that people weren't taking seriously because in the predominant model, they do not have time for flower. They want to know, like, especially emergency medicine, what's going on with this person. And so in some ways, in order to be able to do the work that I do, I've had to learn how to... Um, speak the language of the kind of predominant folks, you know, being able to say like, Hey, you know, this person's uh, going through a manic episode and it might be related to them being off their meds or it might be related to childhood trauma, you know, is like a way that now other clinicians who aren't steeped in like a more esoteric kind of background can understand what I'm about to do with somebody, even though that's just something to help them understand. Like, Hey, I'm gonna go sit with this dude. Right. (laughs) I mean, you're, you're just basically, I mean, you're trying to, uh, describe the same event through different yeah. uh, different professional vocabularies. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I, 
And so I, I think that that is where, um, you know, there, there, you have to be in, in order to do a lot of the work in our field and bring in um, these kind of alternative perspectives that are so desperate, right? Because the best place to have um, mental illness is not America. It's actually like Africa, India. Yeah, and I sp- I've spoken to that before too, where um, those who we would consider as mentally ill yeah. over here are actually venerated and seen as the spiritual yeah. or tribal leaders, the people who can, you know, tune in with the weather and and future and yeah. past and all that stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, when I, not only that, like, so somebody who might be having psychosis, um, what we would refer to as psychosis or schizophrenia or some kind of extreme state of mind here that would be told that as a pathology that's something wrong with you, um, here's some medications. If they were in India, um, that same person might report that they just talked to gods. And and not only that, over here, our delusions or hallucinations, so um, typically with like organic sort of psychosis or schizophrenia, um, people will typically hear voices. Um, that's a primary experience. Not And whereas like a drug experience, people will tend to see stuff more. Right. And they're both hallucinations. Yeah. So just so that people know, um, hallucinations are not just visual, but like auditory hallucinations, somatic hallucinations. Every sense, every sense in the body. Yeah. yeah. And a hallucination is not, um, well, hallucination is literally seeing something that is not there, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Which yeah. is not what happens in a, in a psychedelic experience. You're yeah. not seeing things that aren't actually there, like, you know, the propaganda would tell you. Yeah. Uh, you're just seeing more of what is actually yeah. there that you're kind of tuned out from uh, in normal everyday waking consciousness. Actually, an important way that I will um, assess, is this a drug experience or something more like what we would call organic. schizophrenia, yeah. organic, is... Um, People in psychedelic experiences will typically have what you were just describing in the literature we call the pseudo-hallucinations. So a pseudo-hallucination is where you are seeing something maybe that is not there, but you're aware that it's not there. So you'll see that with psychedelic experience, this phrase, it's as if the wall is melting. Right, or I'm thinking more like, uh, you know, I'll look at a tree yeah. uh, on a psychedelic. It's, it and, looks and as I can if it's breathing. <laughs> or, yeah, I can see, like, energy emanating yeah. from yeah. its branches and stuff, and, like... That could actually be yeah. there. Maybe I'm seeing uh, more of the light spectrum because, yeah. you know, these psychedelics are amplifiers mm-hmm. and open those channels. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when, it, when I'm off of the substance, it closes the channel back up and exactly. now I can't see it. But it's always there. Yeah. 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 So that's the things that like Alex Gray draws and Android Jones is yeah. exploring yeah. is like um, showing us more of our reality yeah. that is there all the mm-hmm. time, but that we're not always conscious to. Yeah. And so the the... Somebody who might hear voices here in the States, mm-hmm. voices, when we study them, tend to be um, persecutory. They'll have some religiosity, a lot of shame. So mm-hmm. sexual material, like you're a filthy whore, a voice might say. Um, it might be the voice of a past attacker, whereas voices in like, places like India will be gods, ancestors, and they'll be helpful, they'll be friendly. Um, and so I often think, you know, the psychedelic experience, the... Um, the organic psychotic experience, whatever the spiritual emergence, these extreme states when we don't label them have so much overlapping material. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what I see when I'm working with somebody who's in a bad trip at a festival um, is that they are working with something that they desperately don't want to be. So the way I was saying that a psychedelic might help you come into relationship with that pain you've been avoiding your whole life that you may not even be aware of, that black hole of suffering that lives with you, you're going to be face-to-face with it. 
And the second you start experiencing this thing that you've never learned how to experience, this death threat from childhood in a psychedelic experience, you start freaking out saying, I don't want this. I want to get away from this. That's where resisting again, the resisting is where the bad trip begins. Most of what I do when I support people through these experiences is allow them to find the skill set that exists within them to hold it. I just help them learn how to hold this thing to make it okay. It's safe to be here with your experience. So I wonder if in some ways what the Western psychotherapeutic approach has been doing has been creating bad trips for people. Somebody comes in hearing voices and a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist says, oh, that's terrible. That should not be the case. Something's wrong with you. Something's broken with you. You have a brain disease. And then they start freaking out. The voices maybe start taking on a more antagonistic tone. Then we start medicating, and then they've never learned how to maybe even deal with the voices. I'm a, I'm trained in a modality, an alternative perspective, um, started in England called Hearing Voices Network. The Hearing Voices Network is a peer support group that meets, and it's people who identify as hearing voices or seeing visions or any extreme state. And there's no counselors in the room. There's no degrees. In, there's degrees in the room, but they're not in their professional role. Mm-hmm. But it's people who have these unusual states of consciousness coming and talking to itself, almost like um, like an AA group for hearing voices. But people engage each other, and they make sense and meaning and purpose out of their voices in some way, non-pathologizing. And, you know, the person who trained me in that modality, um, she's heard voices since the day she was born with the day she was starting to have experiences that she was consciousness of. And it's three voices. Two of them were little girls that never grew up. She's in her fifties now. Um, They're still with their same age. And then one of them's a male voice who grew up with her. Um, And she's never related them as if they're a problem. Now society did. So, uh, but what do you think is uh, going on there as far as consciousness wise? Like, do you think um, like that this person, uh, like if you hear voices, do you think you're, your tuning fork is tuning into somebody else's frequency also that could have lived in the past or could, you know, be in a, a spiritual presence or, um, you know, could it be a projection from somebody else's own memory or yeah. what do you think is going on with, with that? You know, it's so great that I started this all with the minds of mystery and uncertainty is because yeah. the more I sit in these spaces, the more actually I feel like, I'm not sure. I had a lot more certainty when I first kind of started mm-hmm. of like, um, you know, uh, people coming out of DMT spaces. I mean, I've been in DMT. DMT is part of the reason that I kind of got into Buddhism, too, was, you know, I. but DMT, people have experiences where the hallucinations are more real than anything they've ever experienced. Right. And they're communicating with something I believe that truly is out there. I do think that there are aliens or something that has taken on maybe the archetype of alien, of angel, of demon, of like something. But then I also have been with people in states that I'm like that. Something that communicates with us. Yeah. And then I've also been with people in states where, you know, they've been in an LSD experience and the internal stimuli that they're responding to or the conversation that they're having is a conversation with some younger version of themselves, you know, Um, or I've seen. Yeah. So time like layering on itself, almost like, you know, the Buddhists believing that past, present and future are are in accordance simultaneously, you know, that we can literally time travel uh, in our mind. If we can take ourselves back to uh, spaces uh, when we were young or to our future self, that we can experience those and actually experience time travel without a machine. I actually often conceptualize, um, or I'll use this kind of language with clients of like the way that we are so focused on how the past is impacting us right now. Mm -hmm. 
there's a future self pulling you towards it. Yeah, we're pathologizing <laughs> ourselves by just being like, well, I've always been this way, so I'm always going to so be, yeah. you know, abusive, or I'm always going to be yep. whatever, you know? Yep. Well, no, you have a choice in every single moment, yep. It's but it's about waking up. you got to be – you have to practice the skill sets. You have to gain the skill yep. sets, which – that's something we're totally disconnected from in this culture. Like there's no rites of passage. Mm-hmm. There's no education on emotional intelligence or mindfulness <laughs> or any, or moral reasoning no. coming up. Right. There's none of that stuff. Um, and so we're left kind of trying to figure it out when all that stuff could be taken care of pretty easily. Yeah. I would think if we, you know, use some preventative mental health and education. But I mean, and the primary thing here is, is that, um, it's all possible and it's all workable. It's just hella fucking painful. And that's the thing that I feel like, see, when I got onto the path and was like, I'm going to be more open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to, I'm going to do the spiritual thing and the psychology thing and work on my shit and become mm-hmm. more open. And the more open I became, the more I was like, Oh my God, anything could happen. It's all full of possibilities. Mm-hmm. But that also was the very um, same thing of, Oh my God, anything could happen. Yeah. And then I had to start dealing with the fear. No, but literally anything <laughs> like I could, blink out of existence in any moment if I realize my capacity to do yeah, that, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's where, like, I think that um, it's all possible. Again, different styles of mental suffering arise out of a desire to not want to hurt. And you can work on any mental health issue you have. You can work on it and learn how to hold it by coming back, by doing these skill sets we're talking about, by coming back to this present moment experience, by being with ourselves and becoming being more choiceful in our process. Um, and being more choiceful in our process there is where that, that openness I'm talking about, anything could happen. Once we start having that choice, once we come back to this, once we stop doing our habitual styles, patterns of suffering, it hurts. I mean, I often tell people that if you are doing meditation and it's all positive, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, oh yeah. It's got to hurt a little. It's got to hurt a lot. I mean, because and what I mean by that is that you are starting to sit with things you've avoided your whole life. Mm-hmm. You're starting to actually make space for your breath to be exactly as it is. Dude, there's a band that I listen to. I don't know if you listen to heavy metal. There's Not a in ba- a while. There's a band from, uh, I think they're from France. They're called Gojira. And, I've heard the name actually. Yeah, there's a song called Esoteric Surgery. Mm. And um, one of my favorite lines is um, there's a secret code, and it's the structure of the mind. Uh, you have the power to heal yourself, right? Like literally break yeah. the, breaking that yeah. down. You know, if we're able to tap into um, this tool, you know, and use it and yeah. hone it and yeah. sharpen it and, and really. Um, you know, take the time to explore it, yeah. you know, all sides though, not just the dull side, but the sharp sides, the yeah. sides that hurt, you know, that's probably one of the most important things we can do as human beings in this lifetime, in this reality yeah. that we're sharing. I mean, no one's going to remember what you said on this planet a million years from now. <laughs> no one's going to remember the work you did. Yeah. No one's going to remember all the things that you think you're leaving behind for legacy. Mm-hmm. No one's going to remember any of that stuff. But what is going to be remembered is like the energetic uh, stuff that you put out to others, like what you share with others, what you give to others. That has a ripple effect through time and space. You know, that butterfly effect, um, you know, I buy you a coffee and then the next day you buy two people a coffee, right? And that echoes on forever too. But it also happens in a negative way. So if I'm 
um, you know, a dick to you today, mm-hmm. you're going to be that way to yeah. two people tomorrow and your wife. Yeah. And then that's going to echo through time. That's what lasts. Oh. That's what persists. That's that karmic mm-hmm. movement of consciousness. And that's where the choice comes in is yeah. where do we choose? Do we choose the high road or the low road in a Western sense? Yeah. Um, and I want to know from you, cause I'm fascinated by this and we were talking about it outside. I want to know uh, if you could break down for me how the Tibetan Buddhists, um, conceptualize differing states of consciousness and maybe the mm-hmm. levels of consciousness in Tibetan Buddhism. Cause this is something that I should know, but yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, ignorant to. Yeah. Well, and what's cool is like, <laughs> we've actually been talking about that this whole time. Mm-hmm. And, um, so to break it down real quick, um, and I'm going to try to do this in a very like kind of, um, succinct manner. So the way I'm talking about that, the four noble truths are that we suffer, we wish we didn't, <laughs> we don't have to, and there's a way to do that. So by noble truths, this is, these are the four basic things that the Buddha came back, and he's like, these are laws of the universe. Yep. If you want to you you find nirvana, freedom, this is how to do it. So go through them one more time? Well, so uh, the way I conceptualize it is we suffer. Life is suffering. We wish we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> suffering sucks. That's we bad. don't have to. Yeah. And there's a way to do that. There's a way out. And you're referring to this earlier too. Um, and in specifically with addiction, you and I both really learned a new way mm-hmm. how not to suffer. Yeah. Right. Our sanity in our addiction drove us to the easiest path, yep. the easy road, but that became toxic. So we had to relearn a new way mm-hmm. and we're still, our path is still avoiding suffering, but Absolutely. we just found a new way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Something that's yeah. way healthier. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So four noble truths. So yeah. So we suffer. We wish we didn't. There's a way out of that. So when I say we suffer and we wish we didn't, I'm going back to the thing we've been talking about this whole time. There's pain in this moment. We wish we didn't have to feel. So the way the Buddhist map would work for that is we relate to it with those three poisons, passion, aggression, ignorance. So passion would be a very addictive kind of energy, right? Um, I want this. I desire I want this. this. If, and if I have this, and this can be in material, I mean, actually, our materialistic society, the way people are hoarding wealth, mm-hmm. that is a form of passion and a, totally. chan- and a way to not have to deal with suffering. I worked with somebody one time. Um, uh, this guy was rich on a level I can't begin to comprehend. I mean, oil, money, long-time USA rich, like, and... I, when I was working with him, he couldn't identify a painful experience that he had to work with because every time he felt something bad, he just bought a wave runner or went to dinner and got a hundred dollar steak. Um, now that didn't change the fact that he was deeply suffering. He no, just but, was yeah. very out of touch with it. <laughs> Stunted his emotional growth. Yeah. And then aggression would be, um, I, I mentioned this earlier too, the angry person getting big and loud so that they don't have to deal with the powerless and helplessness at the core of their experience. Mm. If I get, um, that might be the energy of like, I'm going to shoot and kill somebody. This person is scaring me. Or this might be the energy of when um, a mental health clinician writes a mental health hold because this person's scaring them. Oh, they mentioned that they're having homicidal thoughts or suicidal thoughts. I have to put them on a hold and lock them up. That's an aggressive kind of this is how I'll deal with that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ignorance is uh, I'm just going to check out. That's the dissociative that maybe the that ADHD style. Now, um, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. And that attitude, I actually, those three poisons that I'm talking about, the Buddhist three poisons, um, that kind of get us away from our experience and actually create more suffering. Um, I, so I, as a crisis therapist, I assess people for suicidality, homicidality and grave disability. So psychosis, 
I actually think of those three things as the three poisons. So suicidality is um, suicidality and homicidality are both um, shame and blame. Uh, blame is the homicidality. I'm going to shoot up a school. Um, shame, the extreme shame is I'm the problem. I'm going to kill myself. Um, yeah, the world would be better off without me, that kind of thing. And you could you could say one is more the aggression one and one's more the passion one, but they each represent a facet of that. So the passion might be the deep rage and entitlement and resentment of like this world owes me something that turns into an aggressive shooting a school. Um, or the aggressive I'm going to kill myself is also this passionate like, um, I mean, when you say somebody's suicidal, I mean, there's this deep feeling of how their world like they're they're addicted in a way to this like um to these thoughts of if i just died this would all get better it becomes this insanely uh creative coping strategy that begins typically at a very early age um the problem is, is that people want to act on it um but also then so those two things i think represent facets of passion and, and aggression and, and people could probably tease that out more than i am right now but then psychosis is um an extreme version of ignorance. I mean, if you are in a, if this pain, world is so painful um, that you can't be here, it makes sense to maybe just go away, to let that mind just float. It turns into a very like scary kind of thing for people outside because you're not here. Um, but so yeah, there must be something wrong with that person, right? Yeah, because yeah. they're not engaging in what society yeah. thinks is this collective uh, shared conceptualization yeah. of consciousness, right? And and um, are you familiar with the adverse childhood experiences test? Or like it's like a questionnaire. I've probably seen it. So it's it's like ten questions that this guy and I can't remember his name now. Ferretti, I believe it is. Um, anyways, he Filetti, he identified um, uh, when he was working with people that there are the more adverse childhood experiences you have. So say you grew up with an abusive parent, or you grew up with an incarcerated person in the home, or somebody abusing drugs in the home. More of these that you have, your score typically actually correlated to different styles of suffering. So, you know, you start having four or five of these growing up, you start dealing with maybe addiction. And it compounds exponentially, too. It's not just like one plus one plus one equals three. It's like one plus one plus one equals like 18 because it's it's doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled. And they're starting to identify how um, the more of these you have, uh, the more likely you are to have mental health issues, but they're starting to correlate. They've been correlating this to hear, to hearing voices. The higher that mm. number gets, the more likely you are to have what we would call schizophrenia. Sure. Um, and so that Tibetan map is just those three poisons, but those three poisons break into actually like um, uh, five different emotional energies. So two of the aggressive energies would be, um, so in, Buddhist conception, there'd be your Vajra, that's the anger, water energy, um, also clear seeing wisdom. So every emotional energy has a wisdom and a neuroses. So um, so if you think of Tibetan prayer flags, the five colors represented on there each represent one of these different emotional energies, blue being anger and clear seeing wisdom. The other aggressive uh, energy would be um, karma, which is green, which is, um, that's wind, which is the neuroses is, um, or the wisdom is a skillful action, just getting shit done. But the neuroses is um, this neurotic busyness, spinning around, getting nothing done. Our, we, um, American culture is very action karma oriented. Um, that's kind of the predominant default. Like if you're doing that energy, you're probably getting rewarded in some way. Then the two passion emotional energies are um, red on the Tibetan prayer flags, which is Padma, which is, um, 
the energy of connection, um, discriminating awareness, this ability to feel felt tones, this artistic side of us, but the neurotic side is this side that's doing the push-pull, can't tolerate loneliness or aloneness. Um, it's the neurotic clinging, please don't leave me. It can be a codependent energy. Um, then the other passion energy is um, yellow on the prayer flags, um, and it's called Ratna, and Ratna is the gift of equanimity. So the ability to hold things, to create spaces, um, enriching energy. So um, this would be the energy that likes to set out a nice space for guests. But then the neurotic version of that is the hungry ghost. That's that's that addictive, like taking in more. I'm never full. I need more. I mm. need more. Might- would that also connect with like OCD type tendencies? Like it's never quite good enough or perfectionistic yeah. tendencies. O- and OCD and perfectionism might fit more into that uh, Vajra water blue energy that I was okay. talking about because that well, might even be the more anger one, more categorization. But it's a control kind of thing. It's it's an aggressive way to deal with your experience. Absolutely control. Yeah, and then um, the yeah, and the, it, it might actually the yellow. Um, uh, Ratna uh, or earth or earth energy is also like that neuroses could be like an eating disorder. Mm. Like I never feel full. I never had the love I got when I was, you know, never got love. And when I do have it, I take it all in, you know. And then the final energy is um, Buddha, which is white, that white prayer flag. And it represents um, the ability to j- it's space just to be. Um, but that can also be the ignorant checking out. I'm not here. And so each, so those all spin from those first three um, poisons. And in then the center of the wheel. At the center of the wheel, and then move into the, the five kind of ways I'm describing it. And we have all those energies within of us, but we each kind of have like a home base there. Um, so those maps of consciousness, again, are just different styles of relating with our experience, but they're not inherently bad or good. They're just energy that moves within us that can be expressed in a very negative way, typically a very egoic way, mm-hmm. or it can be expressed yeah. in a very like wholesome wisdom way. I think another um, improper way that it could be expressed is holding it into. Yeah. Right. That's a form of expression is not expressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, that might be, be, that might be an aggressive one too. Right? Yeah, ab- yeah. Aggressive to self um, or, uh, you know, almost like a, like a denial. Like I'm just, uh-huh. I'm just going to ignore Fine. it. I'm just going to ignore Fine. it. Yeah. And so I, all of those, um, you know, that that was like, um, it's a it's another map. So it's kind of like another version of the DSM, mm-hmm. um, right? These are all just maps. Um, little fact about the DSM five is that was all all the disorders in there came about. Um, well, one about a hundred years ago when some of the first people started categorizing mental health issues, um, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, used to be called the. Uh, it's like the Association of Superintendents of Insane Asylums, <laughs> but that's not a sexy name, so they changed that. But they were studying insane asylum populations at the turn of the century, which was everybody who was not okay for society was there. So it was mental health, but it was also people with dementia. It was also homeless people. It was also criminals. Um, but now, like the de- so that's where the original like nosology came out of. That's where the categorization started to begin. But the most recent version, the DSM-5, um, the last three DSMs, that's just a group of white men sitting in a room voting by hand. Yep. <laughs> so, so if that... Oh, that sounds good. Let's check that. <laughs> but hey, is anyone hungry? Let's get out of here. Well, and take major depression, for example. Yeah. Uh, there's, I believe, nine or 11, no, I think 11 different criteria in major depression. Um, so you could have two people 
that don't even have a single symptom that overlap, but yet have this category. Yep. And the reason I bring this up and name the DSM five is because that is a map of meaning. That's a map of consciousness. And it's a really shitty one. If you ask me, because it's like the worst role-playing guide ever. It's like, there's not even any like skill sets in there. Right. Whereas at least the one I'm articulating that comes from a different kind of uh, culture and orientation allows within it. Hey, that style of suffering hurts and maybe it's your greatest gift. So if we teach you how to use it effectively, choicefully from a place of less egoic, um, maybe it will actually be the thing that makes you um, the, the thing that defines you. Sure. I think in, in maybe one of the most extreme type of examples that could maybe paint this picture for people like savants, right? Like yeah. people who have significant, like, uh, by all, you know, mental health scales and everything, um, they would have, uh, intellectual deficiencies in certain areas and IQ and all mm-hmm. stuff like this, but maybe they can solve like super complex algorithms yeah. on a chalkboard that, that, you know, can never be solved, you know? So there's, uh, every, like you said, uh, with the prayer frags, mm-hmm. every neurosis has an equal opposite of, um, positive yep. characteristics too. And the DSM entirely focuses only on the negative it, it, it doesn't yeah. uh, i actually have a book um called uh, character virtues and strengths yeah it, yeah yeah is that, that positive psychology yeah text? exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. it actually goes into the opposing forces oh. a little bit but yeah from the positive psychology perspective which is within the last what 15 20 years yeah and so you know when we're looking at the dsm when we're talking about this emotional energies you know again different maps for explaining this this consciousness mm-hmm. this experience um, one of the ways I've begun to conceptual it, we, we started at the beginning of this conversation um, talking about high and low vibrations, tuning forks. Um, one of the ways that I conceptualize when I work with people is my experience of working with extreme states comes from a very felt sense. Like I said, right brain to right brain. I'm trying to get a sense of where they are. So if there is a center of the mandala and their tuning fork is vibrating really high, that type of energy would be, I think, what most people in the DSM would call maybe 80. Like, different, the higher the vibration that gets, the more it's like anxiety, mm-hmm. ADHD, some, like a high-resting nervous system. They hum high. Absolutely. So I hum high. Then there's, if we go down from the center of the mandala, that might be the depressive vibration, like the lower vibrations. I just want to stay at home. I can't get out. I don't feel like I can even get up out of bed. That's, those are the ones that I tend to vibrate when yeah. I'm in my neurosis. Yeah. And so, like, I think there's a certain people have nervous systems that kind of hum at a baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, we say that the center is the best kind of state to be in. And we're trying to help people get there, but it might not be. So, you know, my nervous system hums higher. I've been labeled with ADHD, but... You know, when a crisis happens, people love that my mind moves this quick, Mm -hmm. you know, because once a crisis starts to go down at a festival or an emergent situation, it's like the world finally caught up to where I'm at. Yeah, you need you're already in action before people are calling for help. I talked to a a firefighter out in Stonewall um, down down past Pueblo, and he said to me, he's in his 50s, 60s, he goes, you know, they, uh, they tried to label me with ADHD back when I was younger. And yeah, my mind moves pretty quick, but. You know, when a fire starts going, I'm the one right with it. You know, his, he says his mind moves with that fire, and then it's not a problem. But so, yeah, depression and anxiety, I think, are high and low vibrational. But then I think if we go right or left um, on that mandala, 
I think on the right side, or well, either one, it really doesn't matter. You can create this mandala however you want, but I'm trying to vocalize this. Right. Um, on the right, um, I think the nervous system, so the somatic is either high and low vibrations, and then on the right and left would be um, the egoic kind of structure of the mind. Is it either really tight or really loose? So a really loose kind of um, structure of the mind might be the the psychotic experience. So the ego is so loose, it's just free flowing, free flowing. Yeah, kind of picking up on all signals. Yeah. And then on the on that right side, that very tight kind of mm-hmm. rigid mind structure might be um, the OCD mind, right? Like mm-hmm. it has to be in a space in a box. And right. so this map that I use again, this. Um, are they tight, loose mental boundaries? Are they high and low vibration? Only gives me a sense of where the person sitting with me is so that I know how to match, be with that, and then also which direction we might want to head, you know. Um, but I never problem solve or I never – I always make space for however that energy is showing up within them. That space is okay, and it, and typically that allows <coughs> them to come back, Um it's once you start saying you shouldn't be having that, that people start freaking out, you know, just like if somebody says to you, stop being angry, because that always works. Sure. <laughs> so I see this, too, in um, like group psychedelic experiences, yeah. too, where, um, you know, someone starts having a challenging experience and others will kind of come around them and, and maybe place a hand like you, like you were describing with yeah. your with your babies yeah. or like help them hold the space, yeah. help them uh, ground, help them kind of tap into and co-regulate off of grounded energies. Um, Now that's how you and I met too. You and I met during a group uh, experience uh, with the native American church um, in a teepee ceremony uh, with peyote. And then the next morning, uh, what I find the most beneficial, the sweat lodge was super intense and makes you feel like you're being reborn uh, after two hours and 200 degree heat. And you come out of there and you're like, Whoa, I'm a totally new person. So, um, on those two experiences, yeah, yeah. uh, were so powerful for me because I did not enjoy those at all. I mean, people often think about the psychedelic experience it's being as fun. Like, yeah. You know, I think, uh, Terrence McKenna, uh, frames, uh, peyote as an ordeal medicine. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that you survived and made it out the other side is actually what's useful. Like, right. It's I like a hero's that. journey. <laughs> yes. Like you're going into the depths, yeah. buddy. Like this is not going to be fun. And that's one of the reasons that like, um, you know, I am a huge proponent of the psychedelic movement. I mean, I've made huge strides within it personally personally and professionally because I believe in it. And one of the reasons I'm also like critical of it in the Mm -hmm. sense that like, I think ordeal experiences are really powerful. Um, When I, what I, how I see MDMA being used in the communities, I sometimes wonder, is this serving us Um, now? A different tool for a different purpose. Different tool for different purpose. And that's why like, um, like uh, one of the problems I see with like MDMA culture right now, uh, I love what MAPS is doing it with healing trauma. It's enormous. And I think that uh, MDMA for trauma is going to be the breakthrough medicine we need. Yeah. Um, if you want to heal, if there is exponential modes of suffering going on in this culture, that is an exponential mode of healing. Um, what I really am always, and drugs are drugs are drugs, the way I conceptualize it, just like um, pharmaceuticals have a place, uh, psychedelics have a place. And one of the things people have to be careful with MDMA is that in the MDMA experience, it's all sunshine and rainbows. And a Tibetan 
uh, way of framing that is that's a different style of suffering. If you're constantly going to that place or you think that that's the only way, um, that's called God realm. It's still just escapism. Yeah. It's, uh, and that's another part of that um, Tibetan wheel of life is, you know, on one of the outer circles there are all the realms, <laughs> the right? Realms, yeah. yeah, all the realms that we, that we all um, live in in many of our thousands of lifetimes. You know, yep. there's the hell realms, the God realms, the demigod realms, the animal realms, the hungry ghosts, the, ghost, the human realm. I think I'm missing one. Um, Those are all the good ones. Right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, I'm glad you remembered them. I don't know if I yeah. <laughs> but they well, I remember them because it's it's a mindset that I'm trying to engage every day in my uh, human consciousness mm-hmm. is like we don't have to die to go experience all those realms, you no. know. When I do die, I might go to one of no. those realms, but more importantly, I think we can create uh, our experience in any one of those realms in any given moment. So like I may wake up this morning and I might find myself in a hungry ghost realm where I'm yeah. just like craving all day long, or I may create for myself a hell realm where I, you know, feel like depressed yeah. all day long. But at the, on the same token, on the other side of the coin, I can wake up and create heaven here on earth. Yeah. And, um, tap into those different levels of consciousness is that also part of tibetan theology around consciousness is that um you can you may go to one of these realms afterwards or you you will experience them all but also that you can create that here on earth too so the and this is where uh buddhism especially tibetan buddhism is very like somebody might look at it in the esoteric teachings and be like man this is some real spiritual woo-woo and the way you're conceptualizing it right now um this is the complexity of a Buddhist outlook is that for me, I have no assurance of what happened in my past or what will happen in my future. I only know this present moment. So the things that we're talking about when we talk about karma and rebirth and hell realms and working with our demons and all this, you'll see these Tibetan teachings. And again, they're talking to these gods or in these hell realms, but actually these are just um, conceptualization for what happens in this present moment experience. In your internal space. That, that we can be, for, we can find nirvana right now. Yeah. Um, or we can go into a hell realm, just like you said. Um, we can go into any of those realms because an energy will arise within us that we can use one of those three wisdoms to avoid and create a hell realm. Or we can exercise our choice when that energy arises and choose a different way. You know, we're talking about this movement of karma and evolution in the mind. We have these prefrontal cortex because we are the universe becoming aware of itself, which means we are doing the work of generations. People have been, I mean, this is why mental health issues are so hard to differentiate where they passed on in a nature nurture. The reason we say both is because we have no clue. They get passed on because... All these patterns, all these karmic patterns passed on to you in this present moment. You inherited all that. All your choices in the past come into right now. And when that energy arises, the winds of karma can pick it up. And the work of generations can happen where it keeps going the way it always has. Mm -hmm. Or you can engage a conscious process of evolution right now where you choose, actually, I'm going to add a different way with this. And that takes a lot of energy. That's why, like, when I say we always have free will and choice, even in addiction when it feels like we don't, your lower brain and the winds of karma could pick that up and do it the way you always did it. Or you can make a choice and it's probably going to be the most painful choice of your life. Cause you're going to have to go through that black hole of suffering and come out on the other side with something new. And the second you did that, we just altered our, our evolution. What used to be a biological random process 
we're actually just doing in live time now. Yeah, so you're talking about um, you know, these three these three poisons in the middle and how they're cyclical and we find ourselves repeating them over and over and that these can be the winds of karma, you know, that we find ourselves caught in this cycle. Mm -hmm. Also, um, you know, the whole cycle and circle of samsara Mm -hmm. in in the larger context in Buddhism is like our, um, you know, um, something that technically, you know, as a cycle, it's going to continue forever. But then Nirvana as an idea of like, there is also a way to, to jump off the merry-go-round to get off the ride, uh, eventually. So, um, what, what are your ideas around, um, stopping the cycle? Mm. Um, not just stopping Mm. the cycle of like anger that I'm engaging Mm. in right now, but like on a bigger metaphysical uh, sense, like, is it, to our benefit to exit samsara or um, should we stay here because it's, it's really psychedelic and it's awesome. Mm. Uh, life is in and of itself or, mm. or is it this future that is pulling us towards it? Is that the exit? Is it, is it showing us like eventually you got, you have to leave. Like you can't yeah. stay here. The show's over. You got to exit the cycle. What do you think? So <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, what first comes to mind is the bodhisattva, right? The person who actually does mm-hmm. liberate, who does actually get out of this cycle, this wheel of samsara, the cosmic cycle of rebirth, but then chooses to come back until all their beings have found it. I, I like that um, because I think, um, like, I like that framework because I often think about, like, my own work of, like, I've learned to work with some of these energies. So I step back into extreme spaces of suffering so that I can help somebody else liberate. So let me let me ask a clarifying question. Mm-hmm. Um because I've always figured, I've always thought of the Bodhisattva as like someone who arrives at the exit door, mm-hmm. at the threshold, yep. and stands one leg in, one leg out, yeah. and sees the exit, yep. sees Nirvana. He's like, all right, I know this exists. Yeah. I can go here anytime yep. I want, but I need to help everyone through this door first. Like, come on, guys, yeah. let's, I found the exit. Let's go. Um, I like that conceptualization. Yeah. I think the way I'm thinking of it is, is yeah. Okay, because when you said it's someone who has exited the cycle and mm-hmm. then come back, it's almost mm-hmm. like they've already gone through the yeah. door and then they reemerge. I don't I don't know if there is any coming back once yeah. you cross that threshold, and that's that's kind of what I'm wondering, like, if that is a thing where you cross the threshold and you just don't come back to this is it to our benefit to stay here as long as yeah. possible or what? Well, I think the reason that we're kind of missing on that one is uh, the micro versus macro. Yeah. You know, in a micro way, I'm talking about I got out of addiction and then I've come back to all other addicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in a very cosmic sense, you're right. I bet like um, if something exits, it's exited. Like mm-hmm. it's not. And like a black hole, like, yeah. like you're not pulling the matter back out of the black hole. I, I actually um, think of, um, there was an episode of Cosmos, um, not the old one with Carl Sagan, but the newer one with Neil deGrasse Tyson, where he can, their current thinking with black holes is that actually matter is getting pulled through that. And what's exploding on the other side is new universes. Yeah. Um, and I like that because it, to me, we are in a constant cosmic spiral dance. You but know? that, but the stuff that shoots through the black hole. It's on the other side. It's not going it's back. on the other side. Yeah. And, and, but I think that, that it points to this process of, Consciousness is constantly yeah. moving and shaping and changing. Will it come to an end one day? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, maybe the cycle finally does complete. Um, I tend to think probably not. I think we're just going to – it just keeps spinning and spinning. Um, maybe it runs out. I don't know. I mean, well, again, I mean, Buddhists theorize and they say that just 
by the mere fact that something comes into existence, that means it also has to cease to exist too. Yeah. And so if consciousness has come to some mm -hmm. sort of existence, um, then it's got to have some sort yeah. of stopping or end point. And I, I, I tend to, you know, I used to think also that it just, um, you know, it, it just has to, it has to keep going. You know, otherwise, what's the purpose? Um, but a couple of my visionary states have, have kind of shown me that, no, like, consciousness is here experiencing itself in as many infinite ways as it possibly can to learn as much about itself as it can. But once that task is done, mm -hmm. and eventually that infinitude of experience will conclude, then it'll be like, okay, check that off my bucket list. Yeah. On to the next thing. Let's you know, blip out of existence again. Yeah. Well, so it's, it, I'm going to bring this all the way back to yeah. what we talked about at the beginning. Remember when I said there were two ways I wanted to take that point? One was towards technology. Yeah. So this karmic, cosmic cycle, this consciousness that's been moving through time, I actually believe what we're witnessing right now, if we move... Um, so Carl or uh, Alan Watts said that the Big Bang occurred and we are the continued sparks that fly off of that. Mm -hmm. And so what I like about that is if we move our, our isolated egoic experience, this oneness that I have right now, and step away from it and just witness that a process is happening that's neither good nor bad, it just is. It's neither pleasure nor pain, it just is. Um, something is happening, and when I step back and look at it, I wonder if what right now we're witnessing is the movement of consciousness towards a different form. And so, because, I mean, we're, we're cyborgs. Um, the way that I've outsourced my brain to my phone. I mean, I, my part of my prefrontal is on there. That's why when I lose it, I lose my shit. Because, man, there's numbers on there that are not in my brain anymore. Um, That's what Elon Musk said, too. He said, we're already cyborgs. We just carry our yeah. technology in our pocket. Yeah, I mean, and even once we started driving cars, we started augmenting our ability. But the thing is, is that those systems are getting smaller, faster, cheaper, to where there's not going to be a phone we hold, it's going to be within us. Yeah. But because this bio-neurochemical electrical process that occurs in our brains, I don't think it's too far of a leap to think that this consciousness could move into, I mean, think of it like... Uh, like the, download. Yeah, or like think of it like philo the philosophical thought experiment of Theseus's ship, right? The ship, if you replace every board on it, every mast, every sail, until eventually every part has been replaced on it, is it still the same ship? Nope. And so if we see, and, and I might think, like, maybe it is. If the ship had a soul that was intangible, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But if I replace my arm with a bio, like a, a bio enhancement, biohack my arm so it's a cyborg arm, how many cyborg things could I get to where I'm still Lauren? And so the question becomes then, um, if uh, it's a bio-neurochemical process that's going on in our brains, if we outsource, if that starts to move into technology, that could be the thing that gets us off a dying planet. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is maybe, uh, maybe, maybe humans, we like to think that we're pretty special and we're on the top of this peak. Maybe the next step is actually a robot. Yeah, maybe we can't. Like, our bodies can literally not survive space for as long as we yeah. have to travel to get to the next star system. So uh, that, that actually makes a lot of sense, that we're going to have to ditch our biological flesh suit yeah. uh, and download our consciousness into cybernetic systems yeah. or create new surrogate yeah. avatars that our consciousness can inhabit that can survive the yep. trip. Exactly. That makes total sense. And I don't think that, I mean, that used to be sci-fi, but I think that it's that's a, that with the technology today, that's a viable solution. Um, 
And uh, yep. I used to listen to uh, Alex Jones. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His, he used to get up on like the technocrats are gonna, <laughs> they're gonna download their consciousness and take. Yeah. I'm like, man, you you yeah. go off on a tangent, but really, that that could be a real thing. Well, so and, and here's the, um, you know. I think that if we take out this human centric thing, like you know, I see this like Terminator scenario in movies. I don't think sure. I don't think there's man versus machine. I think we're just going to become the machine. I yeah. think it's just going to blur too much, um, and that might just be the next step in consciousness. And then they can take it and see what they do with it. You know, we took it from the dinosaurs, and then it got you know, it's going to just keep kind of flowing until maybe it does end. I don't know. Um, you'll like this one. It's called the transcension hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So Fermi's paradox states. Um, that um, if there were intelligent life out there, why have we not met them, right? Like, um, there's billions of stars, there's billions of galaxies, why haven't they come? Um, so the Fermi's paradox is answered by the transcension hypothesis, which states that once any technology becomes advanced enough to where they have kind of gotten into the realm of quantum computing, right? So um, That's right where we are. Miller, our- Miller's Law, too, says that it's exponential, right? That... Um, um, that technology gets uh, exponentially smaller, cheaper, and more powerful. Well, at some point, the technology gets into the quantum realm where it blinks out of this existence. So if we were able to download ourselves into technology and technology kept going into a quantum realm, it could blink out of this three-dimensional space into a 4D, 5D. Mm-hmm. And so I've wondered if what if the things that you encounter, the beings that are encountered in the DMT space, could they just be other advanced cultures that blinked out of our existence into another dimension where the reason we've never been visited by aliens is because we couldn't t- like touch them and or meet them in a three-dimensional space but they're in a 4d 5d 60 watching us here present and maybe dmt alters that a little bit where your antenna pops into that space sure yeah i've heard <laughs> theories about um you know the gray aliens too um actually like being sort of like it is in men in black where um <laughs> You know, these other consciousness, these other higher beings, um, you know, they're not made out of physical matter. So they can't they can't exist in our um, dimension. And so they know maybe how to do some interdimensional travel and they will temporarily inhabit these gray aliens, which are more like androids that go out there and do their work. And they're just sitting behind there like with their joystick, like this is my drone. I'm going to send out there to interact and probe the humans, you know, and learn about them. So. Uh, I think that fits in qu- quite nicely. Well, and I'm, uh, and this is why one of the reasons I'm fascinated by technology. You know, uh, one of the reasons I'm working in, you know, uh, working with Android Jones on developing. Yeah, um, talk about the VR ketamine crossover. Yeah, I, I, I won't give a whole lot of details because we're kind of keeping it low key as it, kinda, as it kind of like uh, um, develops. Um, but Android Jones and I have been. Um, you know, he's been allowing me into the space, um, him and his partner Fong, who work with Microdose. We've been playing around with technology to see the therapeutic elements. You know, Android Jones has always been interested in these therapeutic elements of these technologies. Um, and so one of the things that we first got that I first got interested in is when they introduced me to the biofeedback systems they have. So they have headsets that can actually read biofeedback, um, read the data going on in your system. So specifically, we'll just focus on heart rate for this one. But um, you go into a VR simulation where it is tracking your heart rate, and then in your VR space, um, you see a Android Jones drawn, constructed digital 
version 3d of your heart beating in virtual space. Mm -hmm. So this thing that used to be, cause we know from biofeedback that you can teach somebody to have voluntary control over the involuntary beat of their heart. And a lot of that has to do with, um, mental training around visualization. Yep. Yeah. So visualization exercise, if you can actually visualize what your heart looks like as it's beating, it gives you great, much greater capacity to actually control it. Much like, like if you, uh, have pain or a broken bone and you can visualize yeah. the bone putting itself together, it actually speeds up healing. We have studies that show yep. this. Yep. And then, then biofeedback, neurofeedback work is well documented, but for the most part, it's like, you know, you're seeing a beep on a screen, you know, when in this space, you're seeing your heart beat in real live time 3d, mm -hmm. but then also where the, uh, you wear a sub pack. So a subwoofer backpack on your, and you can Google sub pack, but these are backpacks that, um, DJs will use them to feel bass during shows. Um, the, your heartbeat is coming through the sub pack on your back. So mm -hmm. not only are you seeing this 3d representation of your heart, but you're feeling it. So just that one level right there, if we were essentially putting people into a feedback loop with their heart, where they're coming into relationship with their heart in a very live time, more real, like more, uh, a virtual real way. Yeah. Right? You're not, you're not relying on the client's ability to produce the visualization no. in the brain. Cause I have clients <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that suck at visualization. Uh -huh. I have clients that are like, I just can't do it. Well, the VR space offers that modality, you know, like here, we're going to yeah. hand you the visualization yeah. and then you can help train, um, the visualization in them so they can take that skill on their own. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that we're, um, you know, and this is just one level of biofeedback we're playing with, but yeah, we can do cool. respirations, we can do theta waves in the brain, and then create um, artistic representations in virtual space of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then essentially people can start to learn how to regulate their systems within a virtual environment. But what's even more powerful is the applications that this could have towards couples therapy. Mm -hmm. What if you could see what your partner was going through? Mm -hmm. What if you could visually see how they breathe, how their heart races? I mean, if I, if... If I saw my wife's heart racing when I started to raise my voice in a couple's session, I would immediately be like, oh, my God, I have real-time data knowing how this is affecting her. Mm -hmm. um, or um, what if you could flip the data so that you lived in your partner's experience for a session? Or... Um, or if you lived in your own experience, like well, I don't want to do that, <laughs> right? But say you're in a session, right, and and your therapist is like, okay, we're gonna um, talk yeah. about the trauma from, a, yeah. and then you can watch your own internal processes and what's happening. Yeah. Whereas you know before you might have been tuning that out yeah. or, or or ignoring that or denying it, but now you can see on the screen like, oh man, I. I really am heavily affected by the memory of this or whatever. Well, and this is why too, like, um, you know, um, I mean, we're even working with uh, simulations where what if when your thinking mind is going on, there were clouds in the sky and mm -hmm. when you stop thinking, it actually opens up. Yeah. Um, what if a counselor could put on a headset and see their patient's data? I mean, it takes years for counselors to develop skill sets where they can track these micro things and micro expressions and micro movements in a mm -hmm. client's experience to get a nice sense of where they are. What if you could just see it? Mm -hmm. I mean, we could get counselors straight out of school having a skill set that it might take 20 years to develop. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I want to put myself out of business. I want to put every psychiatrist Me and every too. therapist out of business. I do not want, I want to help somebody see that they have the skill sets to do this. Uh, that's why I call my private practice open source counseling is because it's all open source. There is some skill sets and tools we've been talking about even in this, and it's a process. You offer this to somebody, you give it to them and say, run the process, see what happens. I don't know what health looks like for you. You can discover it for yourself. 
you don't need me. So one of the reasons I'm interested in these technologies is I want to be very subversive and repurpose. Oh, you got your phone in your screen? Great. Let's use that. Um, what if what if we could I mean, what if an Amazon drone dropped off a headset at a person's house who was depressed, couldn't leave to meet with a therapist and now they can pop on a headset in a virtual space. We can see each other's data. I can talk mm-hmm. to them in that space. Um, we're ta- that would greatly enhance because um, there's a brand new trend of, you know, telehealth and, yeah. you know, reaching out to rural populations, but also for convenience, like being able to hold therapy sessions through the computer, through applications. And I do this with a number of clients I have across the world and across the country. Yeah. And being able to um, see their data on their, um, you know, mm-hmm. their bioinformatics, you know, all their stuff, um, as you're talking to them, um, because you know that's the problem with with meeting with someone through the computer is there's that disconnect. You can't pick yeah. up on all the nonverbals, yep. um, and that's been throughout the literature. Yep. So that would be a good kind of segue to mm-hmm. at least pick up on some of the nonverbals. Um, you might not be able to see all the body motions or, or you know you we're know, getting to that point feet, with, right. with, with haptic feedback suits okay, and stuff nice. we are getting to that point so then you'll be able to tell exactly where your client uh-huh. is at mentally and physically like somatically yeah. how charged up they are yeah. from a distance yep and that's where um you know these uh, like drugs uh, technology has the the benefits and cons um that we can use these things if we know how to navigate it but Honestly, there's been no other generation of human that has had this space and this access to information and technologies. I mean, VR right now is like the next big medium. Um, We've witnessed it happen with um, when people started writing, when people started doing books, when we started doing radio, when we started doing TV. We have this thing right now, and it will shape us. We just have to be... We have to decide how that goes Um, because there are people who definitely don't want this to be used for healing. I mean, the dark interfaces and dark uh, patterns that are involved in just websites that encourage you to do what it wants to like encourage you to keep clicking. I mean, or any kind of advertisement like it encourage you to to come buy their product or else you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it tries to alter your story about yourself so that you have to go buy whatever it is they're selling. Yeah, and so you know, religion uh, too does that. <laughs> I mean, and it's and it's everywhere because they, uh, again, it all relates back to we do not want to be in this experience, mm-hmm. and people have figured out ways to game that. Yeah, and so you know, um, we have a chance right now as we because we're moving fast and we're moving quickly to again consciously evolve this process. We do not have to be victim to the patterns of mm-hmm. the past, but it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy. One of the reasons that like we moved into this space with technology, again, is so that we can frame this conversation so that we can direct this and maybe a more directive, more um, sped up process. Um, but again, we're, we're not the we're not the ones guiding it, allowing your heart to be the teacher, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And one of the reasons that we became interested in introducing psychedelics to these space is it's really easy to trick the mind in a virtual simulation. It's not that hard. Um, there's lots of studies showing that people won't even walk off of a virtual plank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they hesitate, even though they know they're in a virtual space. But yet humans have reality testing software built into their brains that are kind of tracking to see is this mm-hmm. real. So I believe it was a paper published by Robin Carhart Harris um, where they theorized what would happen if we introduced psychedelics in VR is that the reality testing software goes down a little bit. Mm. And what if like ketamine um, dissolves the default network? What if... Um, we shut the default network off so that the thing that you were associ- reassociating with 
was your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's some powerful, that's some powerful stuff right there. Um, but it's, it's, it's radical. It's new. It's going to be met with resistance. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those things that it's happening. I mean, me having this idea, there's ripples in consciousness. I mean, other people are having it somewhere else too. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. Um, so I want to kind of segue to one last little bit that I want to talk to you about. And it's, uh, it's going to move us away from like the technical <laughs> clinical stuff we've been talking about. We went really deep into a lot of yeah. really good concepts yeah. and I think the, the listeners are really going to enjoy that. But I want to know about your personal experience of consciousness, especially now that you are a father of twins who just, you know, just, uh, had one year birthday and you, yeah. I mean, before the show you were saying, you know, that once you, the very first time you heard that she was pregnant, um, was a, a paradigm shift for you. And then, again, the moment that you heard that it was going to be twins, another paradigm shift, right? I'm sure there have been countless paradigm shifts, you know, uh, when they were born, the first time you held them, the first time, you know, they opened their eyes and looked at you. All these different moments um, have been highlights or spikes in your yeah. experience of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping you could speak to that a little bit because I don't have that experience. And yeah. that's something that I, I can't wait for. I look forward yeah. to. And I want to know how it's been, uh, how it has changed, how you've looked at what all this means. Yeah, it's, um, I have wanted to be a father since I was very young. Like, I remember having thoughts of wanting to be a dad when I was little. Um, so, like, seven. Um, so, this has been with me. But my whole life, I have been becoming a man. The day my wife told me she was pregnant was the day I became a man. And the day that all of this stuff that we're talking about, right? Because we are talking about some really heady out there. I mean, psychology, I remember when I first got into it, I wondered why we had all these thoughts and these ideas, but nobody was doing it. Like I was like, wait, we know this stuff, but... The, the rubber wasn't me in the road. People weren't walking the walk. And for me, the day I found out about my children was the day all this stuff that, yeah, I'd been doing in my own life and thinking about suddenly became very real. You know, sitting in that room with my hand on my daughter, daughters, either one of them when they were crying, it became real. It was like, oh, my God, this is it. Whereas it wasn't somehow real before? Like a different layer, a different quality of realness? A new depth because... A new um, depth. A new depth of experience because um, parenting is the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life, and there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I... Okay, here's a great example. I don't deal with a whole lot of fear. I mean, I'm a pretty big dude. I have a background in security and jujitsu, and like I just don't worry a lot when I'm out. The second the daughter, my daughters came into my home, I suddenly was like, okay, I need a gun. Mm-hmm. Like I started dealing with depths. Like I have felt fear. I have never felt fear like that. You know, like what if something happened to them? I mean, dude, the SIDS, like uh, sudden infant death syndrome. Wait, like you're telling me my kid could just die for no reason, just stop breathing. I mean, for the last year, I will just like walk in there and like look and be like, are they breathing? Okay, cool. And every parent, that's extreme fear. Every parent that is listening to this will be able to relate to that experience Mm -hmm. of like, Oh my God, are they breathing? It's, you know, it's the most, and then the pregnancy process, like my wife had to deliver in a hospital. We didn't want to, we wanted to do a home birth, but twins are high risk. So we had to deliver in a hospital. 
You want to, I am normally a pretty in control dude. And that is one experience where I had no control over that process. It was my wife and I could support and trust that she was doing it exactly how she needed to do and offer her what I can. And then I had to trust that these hospital and these doctors were going to do their best. I mean, that was terrifying. Um, so new depths. So I've, I, again, and then, you know, we're talking about consciousness. I'm, I've been witnessing consciousness form. I've been watching it happen. And with each, uh, just to back up real quick, yeah. with each new depth that you reached, um, you open you opened up a little bit more yeah. to new experience, yeah. to more experience. Yeah. Um, you know, you reached this new depth with your daughters now, where your daughter son, right? Because they're two, two girls, two, two girls. girls. Okay, uh, you've reached this new level where like fear is totally different now. Yeah. Like before, it was f- yeah. maybe a little bit of fear about my yeah, own yeah, safety, yeah, yeah. but now you're you probably yeah. have some fear too. Like, what if I don't? make it home today. Yep. Like yep. what if I, how are my wife and kids going to survive? Actually, would you mind if I read something? Yeah, please. So, um, this is a, a prayer that I have up in my house. Uh, I have it framed written out called the pen dragon. Um, it's, um, it's, uh, from this, um, here, I'll just read it. Cause th- th- that'll do it the most justice. It's to, it's a prayer to masculine energy. It says, I am he who is the hunter, the father, the provider, the protector. I am he who watches over his people and does his best for his family. I am he, your brother, your father, your husband, your son. I am sheer, powerful, masculine energy, and I am the lover of the goddess. Together we create wholeness. Apart we wander alone and are more easily wounded, even destroyed. I have a role to care for others, to use my physical strength, and to use my attributes to fight for those I love. And I will do that. I am king and emperor, and I care for you. Do not fear me. I would not hesitate to sweep you into my arms and hold you. I love you, but know that my role here takes me away many times from all the love and playfulness that still lives inside me. Trust in my actions. See the truth and choose a partner who is in action, a strong and caring man. And if you are a man, then this is what you must become. That true masculine hero, that being a protection. No matter what you may believe about heroic men, it is time for you to embrace your hero self and become all of who you are. Do not debase masculinity. Respect us men for what we are, and we will show you our love. We will not let you down, and we will take care of you. And let us warn you away from that which would hurt you. I will protect. I will provide. I will build a home, and I will bring forth food to the table. I will build this home with my hands, and you will see the evidence of my efforts. And I will love you. That is my job, and I will never let you down. That was beautiful. Yeah. I... I I have that in my journal and on my wall because it is the most clear articulation of the process. Now, I don't believe in gender roles in the standard. Like, I don't think when I talk about masculine and feminine energy, those energies are present within us. Mm-hmm. Within but, all of us. We all, all have us, both. Mm-hmm. Within all of us. Um, and so that applies to everybody. But for me, it really hits because my wife, when she um, had these two beautiful girls, um, the situation we were in, I I started working an overnight job, you know, to provide more money for the house because my wife, I mean, two kids, we can't afford daycare. Somebody's got to stay home. And just me not breastfeeding and her wanting to breastfeed was just right there was a, I, I'm going to work. Mm-hmm. And that um, when I say like new depths of like a seriousness to my purpose happen, when that line where it says all the play, like love, um, playfulness that lived inside me, 
shit got serious. I mean, there needs to be food on the table for myself and my family right now. These two beans are dependent on me. And so um, the fear that I feel and allow myself to feel the depth of that, that I haven't had to feel before in my, for myself in the past. Like, yeah, if I wanted to stay out getting drunk and smoking cigarettes, oh, I can harm my body, whatever. But if I do that right now, it's not just me that suffers, you know. Um, same for my wife, you know, um, the playfulness that lived inside her. You know, when she was pregnant with these girls and at, during her breastfeeding, that changed what she ch- chose to put into her body before a decision she might have made just for her now affects them. Um, so, yeah, again, new levels of care and fear and love. And connection. And connection. Like you're, you're like, my decisions don't only influence mm-hmm. my path. Yeah. It influences others. And then you probably start to realize that, that your impact on other people, not just your kids, but mm-hmm. other family, other friends, strangers, yeah. everyone you come into contact with has so much greater significance than we give it in every given moment. I used to, um, I still do. I, I call my, my relationship with my wife, my laboratory for love. <laughs> I get to practice skill sets in there with her, somebody I really, really love. <laughs> and I say that cause she has my greatest disturbance. Like mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, I care so much about you, mm-hmm. you know, and, but I'm willing to stay in it and try those really different. So I'm willing to, in those moments, not go with my reactive pattern and try something new that I would never do with anybody out on the street, fuck them, mm-hmm. but her, I try it out and then I bring it, but like skill sets I've worked with her, with my children. I mean, the way I energetically hold my children that comes into my space with clients, you know, um, because I do think in some ways that. Therapy is the process of reparenting. And what I mean by that is that we're sitting in a space with somebody, allowing them to feel something that maybe nobody else allowed them to feel, creating a space for them to do that. It's okay for them to feel it and giving them skill sets on like, this is how you hold it. You know, that saying you can't um, love anybody until you love yourself. I think it's bullshit. If nobody's showing you how to do it, how are you going to know how? And so, so the reparenting within the therapeutic setting, you're saying we're literally as professionals helping to reparent or yeah. recondition response patterns in our clients. But ultimately, we are, if we're good therapists and ethical, trying to work ourselves out of a job so yes. that we're trying to teach our client yes. how to parent yourself. Yep, exactly. We are adults. Yep. We can parent ourselves, yep. right? But most people don't know how to parent yep. themselves. Yep. And that's what we're trying to teach people. Yep. It's like, hey, let's let's teach you an adult a healthy way to still, you know, escape the pain that you're trying to escape or learn how to give you the skills to like go towards it. Yeah. Ideally we'll provide in the space of secure attachment. Absolutely. And then they learn how to, um, so this is why I've never been a big fan of like the AA model of like quit something and never touch it again, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people end up relating to it in a way of like, okay, I'm never touching alcohol again. And what you did learn how to do was how self control and quit something, Um, what I'm interested in is actually like how, like the way my process was of learning how to be in relationship where I could have a drink or not have a drink. Um, what if, um, if we teach people the skills on how to be in relationship and addictions, one way of conceptualizing it, but if you teach them the skills on how to relate with one thing, it extends to everything. If you learn how to relate with your therapist and you really learn how to relate with your past, then you will learn how to relate with your present to your to your now, to yourself, right? Like if I'm sitting with somebody saying, hey, like nothing's wrong with you because you're an addict. Like, yeah, you got hard work to do, but you're okay. 
I now have shown them how to have that voice for themselves so that later when they're alone in their darkest moment and that habitual pattern, that voice comes in of like, oh, here you are again. You're a monster. Yep. This is who you always were. A new voice can come in and go, no, actually, like, this makes sense. You know? Yeah. I like how you talk about it's, uh, you know, talk about the relationship between the self and the substance. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, like for me, mm-hmm. you know, some girlfriends, you can break up with them and still be friends with them, you know, and still, like, yeah, hang out yeah. and be chill. Yeah. But some girlfriends, like, you never want to see them again. Exactly. Like, like, if they're around you, you, you know, you, yeah. you can't do it. Yeah. And that's how it is with me and alcohol. Absolutely. Like, like that, that girlfriend That's why I don't is, touch cigarettes. Oh, yeah, I buried that yeah. one six feet under, yeah. so. No, and I think that that's – and that's also, too, where it's, like, layers and levels, too. Right? Yeah, Like, totally. uh, quitting isn't just one thing. It's a process of watching all the ways. Uh, For the rest of your life. Yeah. And the thing that's, you know, when you were saying like with my children, I learned new depths of something, new levels of experience. The thing that sucks about like extending your will window of tolerance or like, um, cause I call like uh, the work I do nervous system weight training. <laughs> you know, I keep learning how to hold greater and greater levels of distress yes. in extreme states. But um, there's always a state or experience just right outside what you've learned how to hold. Um, and it, it's that's like, where you find the flow state. Man. <laughs> it's right outside what you're currently capable of. I mean, you know, cause people, um, ask me, you know, how do you do the work that you do? Mm. You know, cause I sit in rooms with people constantly and talk about the profundity of life. I mean, we talk about impermanence. Oh, yeah. They ask me, should like, I think I want to kill myself. And I, we talk about that. Yeah. Um, and people ask me, how do you, and I hear stories that will blow your mind. And, and I, and people ask me, how do you do that? And I say, my heart breaks every single day. And in that breaking is where I find the strength to keep going. Mm-hmm. That like in being with that level of pain, maybe I, I break down the next day. Maybe I need to go home and just cry and actually like go be by myself or, or go see your therapist. He's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of me. Um, but yeah, you know, I have to have these levels of um, you have to go through pain. Suffering finds a way no matter what. That's the, f- that's the first Noble truth. You will experience pain. Guys, there's no, you, you can escape pain, you know, a little bit here and there, but it's all, you're going to experience it somehow. I call it, I call it emotional debt. So you you don't have to feel it right now. You can make a very present moment choice. It'll get you away from it. You can be a big spender next, next year. And then it accrues a little interest and a little interest and a little Mm -hmm. interest till the next time. I mean, okay, good example. When I quit smoking cigarettes, that used to be my steam valve for my anger. I'd get angry, I'd get angry, I'd, have a, I'd go out and have a cigarette. When I gave up cigarettes, I had to deal with a level of anger that I had not dealt with in 10 years mm. because I started smoking when I was in my early 20s. And then when I quit, was in my late in my early 30s. And it's like, I was dealing with like anger that I was like, why have I never learned how to deal with this? I'm like... I, I work with anger with people and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I punched a wall. The mm. first, the first, like week that I quit smoking, I punched a wall and I, I was like, Oh my God, I just punched a hole in the wall. I haven't mm. done this in forever, but it's because there was emotional debt on there. Yeah. I chose not to feel it for 10 years and it came back hard. It's still going to be there. I know. And that's where the cycles, these spirals, that's why you are going to suffer and you're going to do it probably in your habitual way. So make some, make friends with that because 
Now when I get angry, because I'm not getting rid of my anger, I'm not getting rid of that style, but now when it shows up, rather than being like, oh, you scumbag, there it is again. When I'm angry, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Ooh, make fun with the suffering. That's kind, of, make, your, it's kind of your thing. Make friends with the suffering, Lauren. Yeah, like like there's, there you are. I'm your best friend. I mean, it's uh, when I start to like actually make space for it in my life, there's no problem. Mm. Now the energetic feeling but the aggression not okay i don't make i don't make space for like oh you hit a wall that's totally cool i say hey you're angry and that's fine and let's express it in a healthy way choicefully yeah um in a related way i think i i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of the type of person who seeks out challenge because i know it's going to pay off in the yeah. you know i seek out the challenging experiences mm-hmm. i seek out the rites of passage i seek yeah. out the you know the transformative um, groups experiences where it's it's not a fun time yeah. all night long. You know you're puking your guts out and you're uh, you know you're purging from both ends and not feeling good at all. Like I do that intentionally with purpose because if you go towards the suffering that's inevitable and you become friends with it, <laughs> then you come back from that and you're like, oh, you have you have less power over me. Yeah. in my daily life now, you know, yeah. um, or, or finding mastery within the suffering, right? Mm-hmm. I'm reminded right away of uh, jujitsu, which you have experience yeah. with too, right? You learn very soon that suffering is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so you can, can, you can either go with it and yeah. figure out a way out, or you can wallow in and be the victim of the suffering and then stay stuck. When you say go with it too, um, there is three ways to persuade somebody, um, force, reason, or charm. Force and reason essentially are aggressive modes because they're both one's either you're going to do it because I'm going to physically make you Mm -hmm. do it. Or one is I'm going to convince you through Mm -hmm. an intellectual battle. Um, But charm is sliding up next to somebody and saying, hey, I see you. Where are we going? And being able to support them and walking towards something that will benefit them ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, I use that because, yeah, we could shame as a way to try to force our suffering away. You know, the things that we do that we hate, we shame ourselves aggressively. Stop doing that. That doesn't really work. Uh, we can try to logically like outthink our suffering, you know, oh, why am I doing that? I should know better. Um, but I like the idea of the charm, the making friends with the thing, mm-hmm. because then you slide up right next to it and say, Hey, I see you where are we heading. And then it's not in some battle with you. It's not in some, you know, it's like um, the lower brain Hulk, and the top brain's Dr. Banner. And you can let the Hulk run loose, or you can kind of do what happened in that new Endgame movie where the Hulk and Dr. Banner are now kind of present with both of each other's they strengths. They conversate. They conversate. Where now you can say, hey, what are you angry about, dude? You hungry? You uh, Yeah, there's lonely? a dialogue. It's, it's not one being authoritarian over the other, no. but now it's like, hey, we're all at the table. No. We all have a voice. And if you want to learn how to actually have real conversations with the people in your life, um, conversations with the mind or with your own mind or with your own mind. It's learning how to, um, talk to that lower emotional brain that lives there. That part of you that is scared, that's hurt, that's trying its best to avoid suffering. Um, the analogy of, I use Hulk and Dr. Banner, but another analogy used in the literature would be, um, the elephant and the man riding on top. When we are in this prefrontal cortex space that you and I are talking out of right now, where we're, our needs are met, we're the man on top of the elephant, but the second we get triggered, the second we get scared, the elephant, like, so let's say a lion pops out, our man up top could be like, I don't care that that lion's there, keep going, or the tiger's there, keep going, but that elephant's gonna, it's gonna run away. 
our lower brains are like that. Um, so learning how to conversate with the mind means learning how to make space for the difficult emotions that live within us that desperately want to run away, to be fought, like to fight, whatever it is. Like if we start to actually just make friends with it, suddenly there's nothing to run from, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Oh, there's that thing that I typically drink when it shows up. Uh, actually I could be here with it right now and it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I think that's awesome. I think that's a good, uh, good place for us to wrap it up. Man, we went to some deep places. We were all over the map. I love it. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show, man. It it was awesome. And it was good to see you. I haven't seen you enough. And we live so close. And we're both, like, really deeply entrenched in this this culture of not only clinical psychotherapy, uh, Buddhist psychotherapy and Buddhism as a practice, but Mm -hmm. also uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies, crisis work. You and I, you know, our career paths and our paths in life follow very similar mm-hmm. things and we need to uh we need to share that with each other a little bit more yeah. often yeah because yeah. i you know one of the things i've come to learn is that uh, there's very few people in this world that when they see distress their reaction is to, move to go towards, towards it. it yeah i love that <laughs> hey let me help mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um i appreciate you inviting me here and i'm glad we could talk and i, I we went all over the place because you're brilliant and uh, there's a lot to talk about <laughs> Thank you. all right man i want to have you back on the show yeah. soon and your wife too oh she would love to she we were she was going to come out here with me tonight but um finding a babysitter that'll watch two kids is hard well ne- next time bring them up i will and callie would love to just like awesome. help her babysit yeah. for a couple hours and yeah, dude. yeah they're fucking adorable yeah i bet <laughs> All right, man. Talk to you next time. All right. For all you listeners out there, thanks for listening. Please continue to support us. Go donate if you guys find any value in this. All the proceeds go right back into the podcast to give you guys a better message. Thanks, Lauren, for being on the show. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Keep working on yourselves. Keep asking those big questions. And make sure that you're staying open to whatever answers come. Don't just keep asking questions. Make sure that you take a little pause after that question and open up to the answer that's being provided. It's there. All right. Till next time. Bye. Holy free holies. That was a great podcast. We went so deep and yet we barely scratched the surface. Want to say thank you again to our very special guest, Lauren Siovaco. Folks, if you want to reach out to him, um, you can do it through my website, mindops.com. That's M I N D hyphen O P S dot com. Make sure you get that hyphen in there, or else it'll take you to some random other site. Um, so you can reach out through the message uh, comments section there. You can comment uh, on your. Um, whatever link or podcast app you're using. Um, If you're watching it on YouTube, feel free to use the comments. Uh, You can also comment, uh, connect with Lauren individually um, with his email address, and I will include that in the description as well. Thanks again, Lauren, for coming on. You really broadened my perspective in a lot of ways, and you also helped to bring some more clarity to some topics that I have been fascinated in for a long time and have scoured um, the literature on, but have still been left with a lot of questions. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing your experience and your knowledge to the table. You greatly helped out the conversation and helped us move forward towards this uh, greater understanding. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you folks for listening. Please, please, please like and share. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. The listenership continues to grow. Donate if you want to. 
Don't donate if you don't want to, but please continue to listen and let's spread this message, folks. Until next time, this is Shane with Conversations with the Mind and enjoy this next track by the Arturo Complex to lead us out. Until next time, be good to each other and keep exploring yourself. Peace. Mm-hmm.